Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up, Carol. That was loud. Tuesday, January yeah. 10, 843-661-0937. Nothing about the equipment, uh, Freehold, just my loud mouth this morning. Um, Georgia made it easy. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Um, Georgia made it easy. I anticipated having to stay up late in the night to watch a classic college football game between the dogs and the frogs, but it didn't come mm-hmm. to fruition. Mm-hmm. It was over really and truly before it started. Um, my youngest son sent a group text to our family and said, Georgia's dominated the offensive line. I try to be the, you know, the contrarian I am. And I said, TCU can score. I mean, they can score. They've scored on everybody pretty much all year. They'll score some points. Um, 65-7 later. Um, I think it was 40, what, 38-7 at halftime. And that's when I said, adios. Um, I'll see you tomorrow morning. Got me a good night's sleep, ready to do um, yeoman's work on the radio. I did stay up long enough to post uh, something Sonny Dyke said during the season uh, when proposed the opportunity to play Georgia. And someone, I think, may have insulted Coach Dykes of Texas Christian University from Fort Worth, Texas. Remember the trivia question yesterday. And he said something to the effect of, we don't get to play Citadel in Week 10. You know, we're not we're in a league that has to play. I understand the SEC is an elite league, but they get these breaks and breathers, and we don't get to – karma's a son of a gun. I mean, mm-hmm. just, um, you know, well, when you know you're playing a perennial power, just go play the game. Why do that? I mean, why, you know, kind of egg them on a Citadel to give Citadel credit? They responded. When, when Sonny Dyke said, um, you know, we don't, we don't get the, um, the buffer of the SEC schedule. We don't get a Citadel. Citadel posted on Twitter, hey, we, we got a phone. I mean, call. We're not afraid. You know, they've proven they'll go wherever, whenever, and however to get paid for the game of college football. But Georgia is the cat daddy of college football today. Um, kind of interesting uh, Pollard, excuse me, David Pollock said yesterday in front of Nick Saban that same, and then Saban was like, what do you mean? I mean, do you not know who I am and what we've done? Do you know we won the national championship about every other year? Mm-hmm. And Pollard, uh, David Pollock could have said, well, you ain't done it in two years. I know who's won it in back-to-back years. Um, I don't want to be an SEC homer here, but but I think the um, the time is right, so to speak. I went back and looked this morning since 2006. The SEC has won 13 of 17 national championships. Now, my Clemson brothers can say, well, we've won two of those. You have. And God bless Clemson for disrupting the SEC dominance in Ohio State to some degree. And if you go back eons ago, it would be Texas and Oklahoma. Well, they're about to join the SEC. So, um, I mean, you know, and, and I, once again, I, I'm not the fan. I mean, I'm a Gamecock fan. I mean, I do pull for the SEC because it's good for the league, the image, the brand that is the SEC. But but something in my heart last night was pulling for TCU because they're the underdog. underdog. And you felt like Georgia had a better team, uh, probably was going to win. They were double-digit favorites over, you know. I mean, imagine a sport where you've got a national championship game and one team is a double-digit favorite over the uh, over the other. We don't need that. That's not good for the game of college football. And I've talked a lot about some of the ills of college football. But I want to go back to that number. Um, 13 of the last 17 National champions have been SEC schools. Five of the 14 schools in the SEC. So 36% of the SEC has won a national championship in the last 17 years. It's not just one team. I mean, a lot of people say it was all Alabama. 
when that was all Georgia. Well, no, Florida won a couple of national championships. Auburn's won a national championship. LSU's won a couple of national championships. Alabama's won multiple, multiple, multiple national championships. And now Georgia joins that exclusive club of double, you know, uh, multiple winnings of national championships. And it's just, I mean, it, it's a league that, I mean, I don't want to say it just means more. That's the, the, the marketing saying, but it's just a, um, I mean, it's a deeply intense, deeply dedicated unbelievably well-funded machine. I mean, it really and truly is. And I hear these people, and I guess I will be a little bit of a homer here. I hear these people talking about the SEC record in bowl games. Who gives a rat's ass <laughs> about the Liberty Bowl? I mean, half the team opts out. You know, well, uh, the, the, they lost the CarQuest Bowl three consecutive years. Uh, nobody cares about that. It doesn't matter. Uh, when, the, when the chips are on the table, when it's time to play football, there's only one team that has rivaled the SEC, and that's Clemson. I mean, in all honesty, Clemson is the only team that you could honestly and legitimately say um, at a time in their program was their rival. Clemson with Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence was as good as any SEC team out there, including Georgia, including Alabama. How do I know that? Because they proved it. They absolutely proved it. There may have been a year in there Ohio State was as good, but if you take Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Florida – in the last 17 years, the only team that I've seen, and I hate to say this, the only team that I've seen that was their rival was the two years Clemson won the national championship, and even the year they played for the national championship and lost. I mean, they were as good. I mean, they, they, they were elite, no question about it. I've said this year, and I'll stick to stick to my guns, Clemson's not elite right now. They're good. They're better than South Carolina, despite what the scoreboard may have said in November. That was an upset. Upsets happen, but Clemson has better football players than South Carolina. They just don't have as good of football players as Georgia or Alabama. And um, the only decent game last night would have probably been Georgia and Alabama. I mean, Alabama kind of had some injury issues. They lost a couple of games. They didn't deserve to go. I mean, they did. And TCU deserved to be there. I mean, I'm not here saying, well, they don't even deserve to be there. No, TC deserved to be there. They beat Michigan. That's a big deal. But um, but it's just it's one league, and, and the SEC is a little bit top heavy. Every league's top heavy to some degree. Uh, what's to fall off from Ohio State, Michigan? What's to fall off from Clemson? What's to fall off from Oklahoma and Texas? I mean, there's a, there's a fall off in every league. That's why a few teams are elite. The rest of the world's not. But I just think it's interesting. Thirteen of seventeen of the last national, uh, yes, that's not all been in the um in the football playoff era, been some of the BCS era. But I went back and looked this morning. It began in um, 06. And um, and I think the year before that was Texas, and they'll be in the SEC next year. And um, I mean, if I'm a Clemson fan, I'm concerned about that. Jason Priester, who joined us during the football season, Jason and I have become somewhat friendly, texting one another about Gamecocks and Tigers and some of the things I know on the inside, some of the things he knows on the inside. And, um, and Jason's concerned. And he says some of the brass at Clemson are concerned about the expanding of the Big Ten and SEC. And if you take a brand like Clemson, it's a brand. It's a very reputable brand in college football. Um, they're, they're kind of in a league. I don't want to call them a misfit. That's unfair. But, but they're a little bit out of character with the rest of, with the rest of their league. And uh, where do we go from here? Don't know. Don't have any idea. But it ain't good when your national championship game ends up 65-7. And, I mean, it was just one team completely and totally dominating the other team. And as much as I try to be a contrarian to my son – <laughs> I mean, the writing was on the wall. One team was just killing it oh, yeah. on the uh, on the line of scrimmage. Uh, if you're a Gamecock fan, and once again, that that's being an SEC homer, but giving Clemson its due. Once again, I'll say it. In the last 15 years, 
the only team outside of the SEC that I thought was that sort of team, a dominant offensive and defensive juggernaut, can we say that, would have been Clemson with Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson. I mean, they had elite wide receivers, elite defensive linemen, elite defensive backs, an elite running back. Um, they, they were elite. But right now it looks to me like there's Georgia, I'd still say Alabama, Georgia, Alabama, and kind of everybody else meddling around. It'll be interesting to watch Saban go into next year as the second fiddle. I mean, he's clearly the second fiddle in the SEC now. And Saban probably doesn't care much for being the second fiddle. He had the number one rated recruiting class in America. So we'll see where that um, that intense rivalry goes um, from here. To the Gamecock front, you ready? Yep. You, you didn't compete for a national championship, didn't win a national championship, but you got some good news yesterday when your um, star-wide receiver, Juice Wells, announced that he's um, that. coming back. And, uh, you know, I would imagine – that there's some um, shenanigans going on behind the scenes about players coming back or not. There's transfer portals, and, and it's a crazy world in college football today. But one of the pieces of the puzzle that the Gamecocks needed to come back next year was um, a, kind of an all-SEC kind of receiver. Juice Wells is that. He decided um, to, not, to, to come back and play another year instead of making himself draft eligible. Rev, I would imagine – that there's a draft score somewhere. There's a salary commiserate with that draft score or projected salary. And you go to the uh, the NIL folks and say, hey, here's what I think I could make, or here's what I would make if I go to the NFL. You know, what can you do? I think that's how some of these negotiations will take place. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you take a Trevor Lawrence or a Jadavion Clowney, I mean, there's not enough money in South Carolina to stop those two from going pro. I mean, there's just not. I mean, if you're a football coach and Trevor Lawrence is draft eligible and you're honestly doing your job, you tell the kid, go. I mean, it makes no sense for you to come back here. Yeah, we'd love to have you. Obviously, we're a better team, but but it's my job to look after your best interest. You declare for the NFL draft, go hire an agent, go hire a trainer and get ready. Same thing with somebody like, like Jadavion Clowney. But, but most of these players who are not going to be, you know, first round draft choices have to make a decision. What What is the, um, what is the financial future? If I go in the second, third, fourth, fifth round, and what can my university do for me in regards to NIL or some of these, um, well, I mean, it's name, image, and likeness, but how much are they going to pay me to play, right? I mean, we can call it what we want, guys, but let's level with ourselves. I mean, that's what we're doing. I understand they show up at car dealerships and sign autographs. They show up at the American uh, or the United Way, and they, um, you know, they help at the homeless shelter. Okay. But they're doing that in their name, image, and likeness. They're being compensated by some 501c3. I get it. I mean, the rules are on the book. It's structured that way. They have to do certain charitable activities or, or, or earn the money in some way. But we're paying football players in college. Stop with the nonsense. I heard a debate over the weekend about, where well, we're not really playing players. Yeah, of course we are. We're <laughs> paying players. We've always paid players. The good ones, the really good ones, have always gotten you know, the, the bag under the table. Now we just put the bag on top of the table and say, Juice, is that enough? <laughs> I mean, what, what is your projected draft status? Is that enough? I mean, does that look like a big enough bag of money for you to um, be happy coming back home? And I guess Gamecock faithful are waiting on um, Spencer Rattler to make a decision. That would probably be the biggest decision the Gamecock fans are waiting on. Um, Clemson's- it's, it's funny watching all the speculation on Twitter, you know, who's doing what, who's going to announce today, who's, you know, th- there's all this talk about Juice uh, supposedly at some point said, I'm waiting to see what my quarterback does. Well, when he announced yesterday, of course, the speculation online was, well, this has to mean that Spencer's going to announce within the hour. Well, I mean, I, I've always felt Spencer's coming back. 
Spencer's talent is first round. Spencer's status is probably third round. I mean, square that up. I mean, mm-hmm. Spencer has first round talent. So he can increase. Third, of course he could. He can if he comes back value. and makes his mind up, he wants to be as good as he possibly yeah. could. Come back, you know, work out, give it all you've got. Get ready for the draft. I mean, Spencer Rattler has first round talent. He's a little bit undersized. I mean, he's kind of a kind of a small frame kid, and and the scouts will. I mean, they look at you like a meat market. You know what I mean? They'll make you hold your arms out and measure from fingertip to fingertip and how big your hands are and the vertical leap and all these other measurements they do in some of the combines. But Spencer has an electric arm. I mean, his arm's elite, and he has first round draft choice talent. But but it's up to him to come back if he decides to come back, and I predict he will. I mean, I think Spencer will come back and. um does he have an all-SEC kind of year as a Gamecock quarterback? Don't know. Don't have any idea. I mean, if he plays like he did in the last three games of the year, struggled a bit at Notre Dame, but not bad. I mean, he played well at Notre Dame, lit it up against Tennessee and Clemson, mm-hmm. uh, other than, you know, a couple of bad mistakes. Spencer's Bitcoin. I mean, he's going to be that. He's going to be the guy that walks the bases loaded and then strikes out the side. I mean, that's just who he is. A little bit like Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre, some of these um, high-risk quarterback, high-risk, high-reward kind of talents. But, but Juice coming back, and I'd heard over the weekend that Juice was leaning toward coming back. Um, and, and I just got to, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I'm convinced that if Juice comes back, Spencer probably has already made his decision. He just wants to make a bigger splash than Juice did. You know what I mean? He wants to make the Gamecock Nation wait a little longer <laughs> to decide. And, uh, you know, Jason tells me that Clemson caught a break last week with a couple of, um, you know, perennial all-conference kind of players decided to come back. We knew some of their defensive linemen, the Murphys, the Brassais. I mean, those guys had to leave. They've got a lot of money waiting on them in the National Football League because they're dominant college football linemen, and they'll make a lot of money to go play in the NFL. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's kind of a state of affairs in college football today. Um, I mean, I gave Clemson a lot of love there, man. I mean, a Gamecock fan, that's hard to do, but Mm -hmm. I gave Clemson a good bit of love there. 8-4-3. Six six one. The semifinal games were so much better, though. Obviously, well, I mean, when we get Clay, Clay Travis, who hosts a uh, an alternate, you know, noon show. I think Clay Travis and Buck Sexton and Dan Bongino they fight out that twelve to three time slot, uh, and I think both are doing fairly well. But um, Clay Travis tweeted this morning, or maybe last night, and I read it this morning that he predicts when the when the playoff expands to twelve teams, there will be a year that all four of the finals are SEC teams especially with Texas and Oklahoma come come into the league. Now, I don't know that, but that's Clay Travis uh, provoking. He's a radio show host. Imagine that. He's a media personality trying to provoke a conversation in the Twitter sphere. But um, but he did. He said that um, I think the 12-team, the I've got some pretty good – I mean, I think that, that Texas and Oklahoma will come to the SEC a year before the contract says they will. I think all parties want to get this done. Um, in other words, I think this football season coming, because we're in 2023, the 2023 football season will be the last season of the SEC that doesn't include Texas and Oklahoma. And, and I've gathered that from some of the insiders at USC, that they've had multiple conversations about working out and buying out. Um, if, the, if Texas and Oklahoma come next year, the SEC owes the Big 12 X number of dollars, and I think they've agreed they'll pay some of it if Oklahoma and Texas will pay, you know, the, the other share of it. So, I mean, I'm understanding Texas and Oklahoma will be in the SEC next year, and um, and they'll probably change the format of the league rev. They'll do away with divisions. They'll, they'll go to um, a, an additional conference game. I mean, that really makes your schedule a lot more complicated. But you get to play. I mean, in the, some of these rotating schedules, you, I mean, a kid can go to school and never play Alabama. 
you know, never play. Uh, so they, they'll, they'll probably create these pods. And I would imagine South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia would be in a pod. You know, Georgia, LSU, excuse me, Florida, LSU, Alabama, Auburn. I don't know how they'll do that, but they'll, they'll, they'll pod it instead of having the two divisions. And I think the ACC as well does away with the two divisions. But I think, and I've complained about the realities of college football. I mean, I think college football has a great, great story. I think it's been poorly managed for too long. Uh, you end up with a championship game of 65-7. to seven. That's just not a good look. I mean, it really and truly is not a good look. And, and college football is hyper-capitalism. I mean, the haves and have-nots. You know, Georgia will pick first. Alabama will pick first in the NFL draft. And, uh, man, that's what makes the NFL so intriguing. That's why so many teams are always eligible for the playoffs. Um, the bad teams get to draft first. In other words, Jacksonville Jaguars a few years back uh, took with the first pick in the draft Trevor Lawrence. I mean, that would have been like saying, okay, um, Kansas City Chiefs, you get to draft first. Well, we like to have Trevor Lawrence as our backup to Patrick Mahomes because he doesn't have it another two or three years in the league, and the rich get richer. And that's kind of the story with college football. And I think the NIL and transfer portal, the portal may not, but the NIL has absolutely exacerbated um, that problem. Do you really think the folks in – I mean, you know who's running the NIL at Georgia? Former chairman of Augusta National. Oh. <laughs> You think he knows how to drum up money? (laughs) I mean, think of that. I mean, imagine that. The former chairman of Augusta National is um, responsible for running the Georgia NIL. So, yeah, I mean, he's got a list of donors unlike anybody in the world. Who who are the members at Augusta National? Some of the wealthiest people in the world, right, or in America at least, do have an affinity for uh, Georgia football. I would imagine some do, but uh, but when you've – when, you, when you've hired as your NIL director a former chairman of Augusta <laughs> National, you, you know you're getting serious about raising money and holding on to players. Enough of football, enough of sports. Ralph Norman will be with us at 7.05. I'm excited to have Ralph come on and explain from his perspective what happened last week. Guys, this is probably the best week in conservative politics for a generation. I mean, it really and truly is. When you look at, and I went back last night and read, had the TV on mute. Georgia scored again. TV on mute. Georgia scored again. Um, <laughs> is that TCU punting again? That was an interception. Uh, but uh, but I, I was reading a good bit in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, a um, couple of other places, American Conservative, about what um, concessions were made by McCarthy. And there's no doubt. I mean, th- this was a monumental moment in conservative politics, probably the biggest in a generation. I mean, it really and truly is. Now now the brouhaha will begin about do we cut discretionary spending that includes defense. I mean, that that will be one of the central arguments. We touched on it yesterday, but um, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, um, the the talking points and storylines are already creating themselves. I'm willing to go here, but I'm not willing to go there. I've not heard a Republican yet say uh, Social Security and Medicare on the table. But if we're going to be serious about spending, they say they are. But if they're really, truly serious about spending, Social Security and Medicare have to be on the table. Take a break. Back in just a few. You know, we said yesterday that the majority, and, and I don't want to steal the thunder of Ralph Norman. Ralph will be with us um, in the 7 o'clock hour scheduled. We never know. I mean, Ralph wanted to be yesterday, but he traveled. He was traveling back to Washington from Rock Hill during the period of time we're on the air, trying to run Russell down. Um, didn't want to bother him yesterday. Did, well, obviously, I want to bother him over the weekend because he wasn't a member of Congress yet, but he's a sworn-in member of Congress. They voted yesterday on rescinding 
some of the IRS money, IRS agents. I actually turned from the football game to C-SPAN, and it was kind of rambunctious. <laughs> but there's a little bit of conservative energy in the air. So C-SPAN was, was more rambunctious than the football well, game? Well, I mean, the football game sucked. I mean, it was, um, I'm telling you, Rev, when you watch you as much football as I have, and, um, and you say I watch it in the weeds, so to speak, oh, yeah. it didn't take but a moment to see the difference in those two teams. I mean, it really didn't. Now, now TCU turned it over. They made some mistakes. But a lot of the mistakes TC made, TCU made, were, were just the Georgia athleticism. I mean, it's the pressure in the quarterback, having the double team ends, and you know, just looping linebackers and safeties and cornerbacks who are better than any you've seen all year. I mean, there's a um, <laughs> you got to catch another gear when you play a team like that. And it looked to me like Kirby was a little bit personally bothered by Sonny Dykes' conversation. You know, I, I don't know that. I mean, but. It, Kirby had a certain demeanor about him. You know, this is business. You know, we're not entitled to anything. Nobody owes us anything. But we're going to go out there and play as aggressive as we've ever played and just completely blow the doors off TCU. And um, they did. So let's go to the uh, to the house chamber. Um, I got a couple of stories here I want to touch on, and I kind of want to hold that for a second. Let's um let's do this. Let let's do kind of a nuanced story here because I want to really delve into. When Ralph gets here, excuse me, when Ralph calls in and when uh, after the fact, I want to really devote some time and energy to better understand exactly what we can expect out of the house. Um, but talking about the University of Michigan a second ago, I'm losing to um, to TCU. I read an article over the weekend, and I'm not talking about Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. I'm talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. The University of Michigan has seen enormous growth in their DEI. Once again, they ain't in the NASCAR. This is not about Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. But in 2018 and 2019 academic year, the University of Michigan employed 82 staffers. Today, they employ 142, what they refer to as, um, I mean, it's fondly inside kind of uh, the, the, the governmental agencies now call these people diversocrats. I mean, they're there to monitor and police and I guess uh, uphold some of the standards that government says and, and academia says has to be uh, reality. But they, they're spending about $18 million. That equals um, the in-state tuition for 1,075 students. They've got um, several of these diversocrats making in excess of $300,000. The highest paid is a lady named um, uh, Tabby Sellers. Now, she also has a package that includes some fringe benefits. Um, 90, uh, 44 make over $100,000. Um, Ten years ago, there were only 20 diversocrats at the University of Michigan. And Michigan's not a Ivy League school, but it's a fairly prestigious university. Well-regarded, well-respected, um, a little bit revered in its school of law. In other words, if a Supreme Court justice were nominated and they didn't go to the um, to the traditional Ivy League schools, the University of Michigan would be pedigreed enough. Remember, um, Amy Coney Barrett went to Notre Dame, and a few people looked down her, their nose at her for not going to an Ivy League school. What well, was Notre Dame law, Michigan law? I mean, th- those are, are respect- Duke law, Stanford law. I mean, those schools would be in the same um, category of just below, now probably better than some of the Ivy League schools, but they're not as traditional. Uh, as the Ivy League schools. But I just found that interesting that if you are one of a an in-state student at Michigan, every dollar you spend in in-state tuition 
If you're one of the 1,075 students, it goes to the $18 million compensation package for the 142 diversocrats that are responsible for whatever it is they're responsible for. It's interesting in the article I read, um, it's a National Review article, 2005 at a board meeting, which is 18 years ago, 2005 at a board meeting is the first time anybody ever mentioned the word diversity, equity, and inclusion. So from 2005, a board member mentioning the word, uh, I don't have any idea what the context was, but there was some matter that the board was dealing with. Uh, and I think it's the board of chancellors at the University of Michigan, but there was some matter the board was dealing with and the, the word diversity, equity, and inclusion that the collection of words, shall I say, um, was spoken for the first time. And 23 years later, excuse me, um, 18 years later, we've got 142 diversocrats making $18 million a year, consuming every dollar that 1,075 students pay to go to a, um, a well-regarded um, institution of higher learning. I just thought that was kind of an interesting story because, you know, we talk about uh, what to Wyoming we go. You know, why do we want to go to Wyoming? I had this conversation with my buddy again yesterday. I sent him the article, the same one I sent you, mm-hmm. about um, in Wyoming, BLM means Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> it doesn't mean <laughs> Black Lives Matter. No intent to insult, no reason to insult. But that's just kind of the way the um, the Wyomans uh, perceive things to be. The biggest battles in Wyoming are over water and land. And, and I was reading more and more about Wyoming. I'm intrigued with it because it's almost a nation within a nation. I mean, it really and truly is. And it's not just Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas, um, that they would qualify as being a little bit um, exempt from normalcy when it comes to uh, what America stands for, uh, what, what America abides in. Or They're talking about, um, you know, violence is not some social media post insulting somebody else. It is, um, it's a wild boar killing, you know, 27 of a man's cattle. You know, that, that's violence. That's, uh, you know, uh, but, but they're talking about some of the property rights, some of the um, squabbles they have over property rights. And they're settled uh, by a lot of this uh, Bureau of Land Management. It's almost like the, the, the people in Wyoming, the ranchers in particular, they're more concerned about the BLM than they are the Supreme Court. You know, the Supreme Court is so far to them, they, they could care less. What did the BLM say about this land squabble or this water squabble that we're having? But I was reading a story about two landowners. One had a, I don't know, a 39,000-acre ranch. The other had a 57,000-acre ranch. And they um, they met somewhere. There was a river that divided the ranches. And then there was some um, property and fence lines and whatnot. They were good neighbors. But they went back and um, the Bureau of Land Management got involved and decided the fence was not in the right place. One landowner needed to move his fence. Well, at a homeowner's association, you know, your fence is six inches on my property. Your fence is four and a half inches on my property. Um, and that's what we become the custom or become accustomed to in um, what I'll call suburbia America. But um, this squabble was a fence being two and a half miles further down the, the property line than it was supposed that's to be. That's a lot of land. Yeah, that's a, that's a bunch of land, two and a half miles. Anyway, they settled it. I don't know how they ended up settling, squabbling over it. But um, it's, it's just a different way of life. But when I read this story, and, and I mean this sincerely, guys, and I know that some of you feel um, like I do, and I'm not throwing in the towel, and I'm not giving up the good fight, but when I hear the University of Michigan now employs 142 people responsible for making sure that Michigan is diverse and they're inclusive, uh, wh- what does that mean? 
Um, well, I mean, I've, I've used the, I've coined the phrase, I think I've coined the phrase, you know, if there's a transgender kid having a period, we need to make sure that transgender kid is included. You know, we're diverse, not, not just white, black, you know, short, tall, big, small, um, th- these, these other anomalies of humanity need to be included as well. And I just wonder where the end is. So, so what, what I've argued, instead of me becoming as angry and frustrated and bothered as I do, bothers my, or it upsets my wife and I get that way because she'll say, why do you watch that? I mean, I was watching CNN yesterday about the, uh, the Biden having documents in his possession. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to see what CNN said. I mean, obviously I knew what they were going to say. You know what they said? No comparison. Oh. I mean, of course, of course not. I mean, Biden would never do that. I mean, Trump needed to be incarcerated, but Biden would never do that. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad you watched it, so I don't have to. But I mean, Wyoming would be a place I could close the gate, and I wouldn't give a rat's rear end how many diverse Democrats Michigan had <laughs> or how much they were getting paid. But but when you're in the world, when you're in the world and you're trying to, I don't know, engage in the affairs of the country, you, you have to read things like this and better understand things like this. And I guess the one hope that I have as a radio show host is something we touched on yesterday. Um, what percentage of Americans have the ability to critical think? Probably more than do. Um, we argue 20%. And I don't think you ever gave a number. I think I may have said 20% of Americans have the ability to critical think or to critically think. 10% do. That means 90% are not. And I can prove it. I mean, I've got some numbers here on debt and what the polling says about debt. Remember uh, the, the House member from Arkansas yesterday I called his name Frenchy Hill, mm-hmm. or French Hill was his name. I mean, he's a, he professes to be a conservative Republican, but during the um, during the period of time they were debating whether or not to make the concessions on McCarthy's behalf to some of the Freedom Caucus, I mean, he stood up in the well and said, you know, held a blank sheet of paper up, said, you know what this sheet of paper is? This is how many people have asked me to cut spending. Well, I mean, how was that sheet of paper not full of names? Because we don't critically think. We, we don't take the time to try and devote the energy necessary to better understand some of these major issues at hand. And um, I mean, that paper should be full. I mean, I would imagine a Democrat saying, nobody's asking me to cut spending because Democrats are naturally sympathetic to government. But Republicans, I mean, a Republican sat in the well of the, I mean, the House and said, nobody's asking me to cut spending. Why aren't we demanding that spending be cut? I mean, why aren't we in... Um, absolute upheaval about the number or the amount of money we're spending. The $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. Um, why is Lindsey Graham not being held? I mean, seriously, and I've defended Lindsey, and you know I have. There's no defense of that. I mean, I know what Lindsey would say if Lindsey were a guest on this show. He would argue, I couldn't take the chance on defense. I mean, you know, we've got an interest in Ukraine. I get that. I respect that. But, but let's debate that. That's always been the point, guys. Let's debate some of those realities. And I think Ralph Norman, Chip Roy, and some of these holdouts have done conservative America a great service by making the speakership far more contested than it has been in 100 years. There was no rubber stamp. Um, what were this, Was there grandstanding? Of course there was. Some, some of these folks were not in it for the right reasons. They were trying to make a kind of a bigger and better brand for themselves. And I don't want to call names. I did yesterday, and you know who the suspects are. I don't know what they're motivated by, but I do believe that Chip Roy was motivated by the goodness of the system. I think Ralph Norman is somebody who really dug in because he wants to see our spending curtailed and managed and, um, and, and not leave his grandkids, my grandkids, your grandkids, you know, a desperate state of affairs. But if we don't address this in a meaningful fashion, that's exactly 
what we're going to do. So I don't want to go too far down that road. I do have an interesting article here from Duke Energy. Um, They apologized to the North Carolina Utilities Commission last week about some of the rolling blackouts. But but an interesting something was said during that meeting. We'll get into that as the show progresses. 843-661-0937 is our number. I guess everybody stayed up and watched the football game because the callers are getting off to kind of a slow start uh, this morning, or maybe I'm going so fast I'm not allowing people to uh, the time to call in and think they could get a word well, in. What is the deal with playing the national championship game late on a Monday night anyway? It's all about subscriptions and uh, what do they call them? Viewer, no, view, yeah, viewer units. I mean, I, I heard that. I, viewer you know, units. Well, I mean, the SEC uh, network was talking about Oklahoma and Texas, and I read an article and they said, it's not about the. I mean, it is about the brands. I mean, Texas and Oklahoma are big brands in college athletics, but it was more how many viewer units do they bring? I mean, another school in Texas, you know, is, is this many more viewer units. I'm um, Oklahoma, and uh, I mean, Oklahoma's a little bit like Wyoming, isn't it? Not quite as rugged uh, terrain as Wyoming, but similar to that. What do you think of that SoFi Stadium? Did you see the? It looks I mean, crazy. It, it looks yeah crazy. My, my banker's a big Georgia fan. Georgia graduate. He was out there, and I texted him and I said, "Man, that stadium looks insane." He said, "It is." I mean, he said it's like Disney World meets college football Wild. Or, or Disney World meets cool. football. It did. I mean, it was a um, kind of a psychedelic looking, like a Jimi Hendrix guitar, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> meets the uh, USS Enterprise. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. I want to get back to this story with Scott Godlieb and Pfizer and the vaccine and natural immunity. But before we do that, someone was kind enough to join us last week before they made a deal, kind enough to join us this week after they made a deal. And, and I want to say to Congressman Ralph Norman that um, despite what the mainstream media may have said, despite some of the articulating of debate that some of the, um, uh, the, the establishment forces, Ralph, I think you guys, yourself included, um, did conservatives the biggest favor conservatism has had done in a generation. And I personally want to thank you for being one of the uh, few willing to kind of stand out there by yourself, demand concessions, get those concessions, and and now we do have a much more conservative Congress, thanks to people like Congressman Ralph Norman. Thank you, and I mean that sincerely, Ralph. Well, I appreciate it, Ken. It's a, um, you know, it's been an interesting journey on this. We started out, the five of us, uh, from going to a caucus meeting where 188 basically and they were in lockstep with with uh, Speaker McCarthy, and you know, he um, I like him personally, but we had to fight for just basic stuff, and um, and I mean, like getting them getting a before bill is is voted on, getting getting it seventy two hours in advance. Is that something that's radical? Um, the omnibus was four thousand one hundred fifty five pages long, and we got it the night before. Even a speed reader cannot digest that. But, no, we made some good progress. I mean, if, if we don't balance this budget, the country goes, goes bankrupt. And I'm just – I was fed up with the way things have, done in, have been done in Congress. We've got a lot of reforms on spending uh, cuts. We've got a lot of reforms on transparency. And um, it was a good day yesterday. We voted on it. And, you know, you mentioned the media. I'm lucky because I don't really care what they think. They're relevant to me. But as I listened to ones that I trusted, like Newt Gingrich, he bashed us. And he didn't even know what we were asking for. Um, And now he's saying how great it is. Trey Gowdy bashed us. And now he's – I didn't hear him the other night. But, I mean, what we were doing was – 
really it was good for the country and just because it's it's been since i think 1923 that we've held out uh, and gotten this i mean more of it needs to be done this was democracy at its at its best and i'm glad grateful for my other four that stuck with us early on and i'm grateful for the 20 that joined us they never expected Never expected we would have that many people. And you know, Ken, you've been in politics, uh, state politics, and the speaker's got a lot of power. But can we not take, uh, you know, a week, two weeks, it doesn't matter, to pick the most powerful leader, I would argue, today in the House, third in line for president? Can we not take time to vet him? I just wasn't going to serenade and and get in in lockstep when I just didn't agree with, you know, opening this process up. Washington is broken, and we got to fix it, but you're not going to fix it by doing the same thing over and over again. Ralph, having said that, I've argued for, well, I mean, I've had this radio show going on 11 years, and one of the consistent themes of my debates have been energy and debt. I mean, we, we can argue about bridge and roaches and education, and I mean, all those are very important debates, but if we don't understand how important our debt is and our energy policies are, to me, those are the macros. R- Ralph, how encouraged are you now that we'll be able to better address our debt situation in America? Well, two things. You're right. If you're broke, I don't care whether it's a family business, if it's a corporation, it doesn't matter. If you're broke, everything else is, is mute. Uh, is voided and, and muted. Um, na- economic security is national security, and we were just passing bills as bad as Democrats were when we had, you know, all three branches of government. We can't do that now. And and the the good news about it is, you know, we've if if you in, in the rules that we voted on yesterday, and only one person voted on it. There was a threat that they were going to pay us back with keeping them, you know, in for. 15, 15 votes, which meant 15 hours, but that didn't materialize. So everybody came up to us and said, thank you, that were behind the scenes. Uh, they would sure wouldn't put the name out there, but nevertheless, we're all one now. But, no, I'm real confident, uh, Ken, that we're going to open up the process. We're going to um, make sure that cuts are made. If, if, As an example, if a federal tax increase is proposed, it takes a, a three-fifths vote, and the good news about it, everybody thought we would have a you know massive majority. I'm glad we don't, to be honest with you, because now uh, we've got a four-swing vote, and we can force things like spending cuts and and right in 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 the wide open public and let the American people see it. Now, I wish we had, you know, a bigger slice of the pie with with votes, but we need people. We don't need politicians. We need people who are willing uh, to to do what it takes and go home and then live under some of these rules. I've got a term limit bill that I've got coming up that they that was part of this package that they're going to agree to to put up. So a lot of great things happened. It hadn't been done in a hundred years and. I uh, just applaud the other people that really stepped out, and you do step out because when you, and you know this, when you challenge leadership, they appoint committees. They're to a large extent determine who goes on TV, who doesn't, fundraising, and all that. But we're way past that in this country. If we don't get get our debt under control, uh, America will no longer exist as it uh, as it has 
been over 230 years, and we'll lose our freedom. Ralph, one of the most con- – this will be my last question. This is the hardest question, but I think you're a man that, that's willing to kind of explore an answer or help us pursue some sort of resolve. It's hard to address the debt unless we do something with some of the entitlement programs. And I'm talking about Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security in particular. Defense spending is something that already concerns some of the Republican office holders. I mean, I don't want to know your plan. I think that's unfair to ask you your plan. But but if we're going to address debt, isn't it true, Ralph, that we have to have a grown-up conversation with the American people about defense spending and the entitlement programs? Well, exactly. No, I'll tell you exactly what my plan is. The whole This whole thing started, Ken, when I asked uh, after they had voted on McCarthy, and I said, are you willing to go on a seven-year budget plan where everybody takes a cut, and we get this budget balanced in seven years. You got to start the process somewhere. And he said no. And that's just when I went ballistic. I just said no. That's he wanted to do another twenty twenty year plan, which is laughable. We don't have twenty years. We're at the end of the runway. No. What what we've got to do? And by the way, everybody is a physical conservative until it cuts a particular program that affects South Carolina or affects a particular state. Everything's got to be on the table. We haven't had a cut since I have been up here. Now, tell me what business, what family uh, can sustain that if you have you adjust budgets daily, if not you know, weekly or monthly. I mean, that's just the process. That's a free enterprise system, and if you're going to stay afloat. But we got $30 trillion and counting, so... No, everything's on the table We before, uh, and we put the Holman rule in, which we can start defunding these agencies. i tell you one that needs to go is the Department of Education. I mean, what what they are doing to our young people is unconscionable. But no, you start with agencies. You start with looking at every, um, you know, every particular group that had been funded in the past. And I'll give you an example that, I mean, I'm in the real estate business. When the SALT provision was put in, I guess, in 18 tax cuts that Trump had, uh, where, you know, they were taking away the cuts from second homes and uh, it was only your primary home. All the realtors called me, which I'm a realtor, and they were saying, you know, we got to have it back. I said, guys and girls, look, if, if you're going to tell me that, then and not willing to to sacrifice that and throw everything else out. You can't. It's, it's got to be fair, and it's got to be across the board. And they say, well, we understand that. So anybody that comes in my office, I ask them when they're asking me for money. I say, here's what I need you to do. You tell me in your world, in your particular, uh, where you are asking for money. You get me some cuts because I know you've got them, and and they do. They look at it, uh, and I get some great ideas on it because there's nobody that knows their business better than them, and that pl- applies all across the board. But I'm excited that we ended up on a 10-year budget, <clears throat> which as long as we start the process to cut, and it's going to be a gnashing of teeth. I will tell you the powers that be here in Washington – uh, the lobbyists, which are smart people, I don't fault them at all, but if you and I said yes to everybody that came in asking us for money, how solvent would we be? We wouldn't. We'd be $31 trillion in debt. Mm. <laughs> exactly Ralph, right. and, and I mean this sincerely, I want to thank you. I mean, there was a lot of questions about your strategy. You know, were, were you guys grandstanding? And I would imagine there were some that were seeking attention. I know Ralph Norman well enough. It was not about the attention. It was not about grandstanding. He's fiscal conservative at heart. And I think for the first time in a long time, we had a South Carolina politician 
act in a way South Carolina voters really wanted him to act. And, Ralph, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Congressman. Well, my honor to do it, and uh, thank you. appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you. Congressman Ralph Norman, um, talking a little bit about the and, – and I didn't want to steal Ralph's thunder. I mean, I, I'd, I'd read a lot of those points. I had studied to some degree and, uh, and talked to Ralph's chief of staff about, you know, where the – uh, what the process was and where it was headed. I think one of the most interesting things he said, the lobbyists are smart people. I don't fault them. I mean, they're hired to do a job. We were talking about Spencer Rattler a second ago and some of these other college football players that have hired agents. Some of those agents don't have a loyalty to Clemson or South Carolina or Ohio State or Georgia or Michigan. I mean, they're there to get their client as much money as they can. And when the when, when the electric vehicle industry hires a lobbyist, when the pharmaceutical industry hires a lobbyist, when the insurance companies hire a lobbyist, when the realtors hire a lobbyist, what are they hiring that lobbyist to do? To make a deal with government to their advantage. I mean, it's not, I mean, it, to, to, to me, there, there's a time it's nefarious and malice, but, but, but in all honesty, it is the system that is allowed to exist. Politicians have to be willing to say, no, we don't have enough money to do that. And the one thing the House did, guys, and, and, and the omnibus and, and continuing resolutions, and I said it yesterday or last week, I'll say it again, we've averaged 4.5 CRs per year since 1997. You know what that is? That is politicians making a deal with lobbyists that you don't understand nor know anything about. Who reads the omnibus bill? Nobody. I mean, nobody reads that bill. But, but if we had a chance and the House has reinstituted the 12 appropriating committees, the subcommittees that will debate have dialogue. I mean, if a lobbyist is asking the government to make a deal with their industry, the taxpayers are funding that deal. They need to be made aware of what the particulars and specifics of that deal are. Once again, the majority of people are watching Seinfeld. I get that. I understand that. But it got so confusing, the really, really bright minds such as yours truly weren't even able to discern <laughs> what sort of deals well, um, they were making. And, and it's, I mean, it's confusing. And it's not the way government was intended And they were voting on bills that they never sure. read. But, but I want to impossible. reiterate, I'm not saying lobbyists are bad people. They aren't. Lobbyists have a job to do. Their job is to get the best deal they can with your government. That is what the Constitution affords them, the right to petition your government. They are petitioning your government for an industry that is paying them, at times, a lot of money. They're not breaking any laws. They're not breaking any rules. They're doing exactly what they were sent to Washington to do. The resolve has to be with elected officials. When Raytheon hires a, uh, you know, a, a very esteemed lobbyist, probably a former member of Congress, and that lobbyist walks over to the, um, to the chair of that committee and says, I need to speak with you about this deal. Somebody at some point in time has to say we don't have enough money, whether it's defense, discretionary um, education, whether it is uh, you know some of the entitlement programs. I've already heard multiple Republicans saying we're going to address the debt, but Social Security and Medicare are off limits. They can't be, guys. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. It's time to act grown up. Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid have to be on the table. If you're over the age of 50, you've got nothing to worry about. You've got nothing to worry about. We're going to honor the deal that we made. If you're under the age of 50, there are going to be some fine-tuning and adjustments made. I mean, it's just the way it is. Private savings accounts, I think, need to be on the table. Uh, a complete reformation of the model that exists that is Social Security needs to be on the table. I mean, we could address some of the um, imperfections of the Medicare and healthcare system but, but we, we've got to understand that there are certain macro issues 
that that will you'll be one day held accountable to. I mean, if you build a road across the river at the wrong place and it takes the you know the man who lives on this side twenty minutes longer, I mean, it just takes him twenty minutes longer. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't exterminate his existence. But but if you run a debt. $31 trillion now. We're spending about a trillion dollars a year we don't have. We just added $1.7 trillion in an omnibus bill. I looked this morning. You know what the offset on that was? I mean, offsets government talk for money coming in, money going out. You know what the offset on the $1.7 trillion? Hmm. Nothing. I mean, there was no reduction in spending. There were no new tax dollars. So that $1.7 trillion just goes on the heat with the rest. Once again, no new tax dollars. No offsets in spending, and it's going to create, Heritage Foundation did kind of a, an analysis, somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 billion in production of goods. In other words, it'll add about $200 billion to the GDP. So, so I mean, would you buy, you know, um, a $200 billion house for $1.7 trillion? Of course you wouldn't. It's a horrible investment, but it's the nature of government as long as nobody has a willingness to address the debt situation in America. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, talking about the debt and everything else. Uh, Social Security and Medicare will never work the way they've got it going because they they say they have this big trust fund and well that trust fund's only drawing about two to three percent a year in interest and that'll never keep up with anything so that needs to be privatized. I mean, for my part, they can have my social security. It's I've, I've never planned on it. So you know, Trump doesn't even draw his social security, but no, nobody will tell you that. The, the biggest thing, your discussion yesterday with our good friend Jeff, maybe that's why nobody's calling. They're waiting on those eight people just like Jeff to call in to make your program more interesting. But the IRS took in $4.85 trillion in tax revenue just to the federal government. They spent $6.2 trillion. trillion just in the federal, that's about 20% of the GDP. Now, where do they get all this money from? They get it from the middle and the lower class. People don't realize people that make less than $35,000, $40,000 a year get audited 12 times more than the top 1%. Because the top 1% have tax lawyers, and they go through their return just like, you know, it's no big deal about Trump's tax returns because he didn't do it. He had tax lawyers that went through the law and followed the law in all the gray areas. They took the gray areas. Guy that makes $35,000, $40,000 a year doesn't have that affordability. So they take a lot of money in cash under the table. And and that's why, remember when Janet Yellen came out to the, the $600 thing? You know, if you had $600 go through your account, you got to report it and all. That's what they're going after. 
They're not. The money is in the the, the lower and middle class. Everybody that makes two hundred thousand dollars or less. That's where the majority of America is. That's why now is the best time to go after a national sales tax and do away with income tax. That's the only way we're going to straighten this thing out. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, the majority of this has to be cut spending. I mean, we're $31 trillion in debt. I mean, there's no way to clean up that mess without cutting spending, uh, whether it's a flat tax, sales tax, income tax. However, I mean, I would agree in, in complete overhaul of the tax code because it's gotten so complicated, so convoluted, so unfair, to be honest, so punitive and, and regressive. But, but, but there's still the reality of money coming in, money going out. And I'm rounding off here when I say a trillion dollars annually, but that's about where we are. I mean, when you look at projected spending, projected revenues, um, revenues, Joe said, a $6.2 trillion, um, $5.8 trillion last year. I think it's projected to be $6.4 trillion, excuse me, $7.2 trillion in 2024. And the revenues increased from 2012 to now by, what, $2 trillion? I mean, the, yeah, the, I mean, the revenues are up. I mean, we're north of four. We're at about four and a quarter trillion dollars, four and three quarter trillion dollars in revenue generated. But we're still, I mean, it, when you look at the debt driver, it's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, there's no doubt we can save money in defense and education and infrastructure and housing and pension plans and insurance, you know, for, for government employees. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a great savings to be made there, but we're not talking about nibbling around the edges. I mean, we're a trillion dollars a year upside down in our budgeting process. I mean, a trillion dollars is an unfathomable amount of money, and we have $31 trillion in debt. Uh, where do you go from there? That There is no way. Once again, when you add the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, there is no offset. There is no collecting of new dollars. I mean, it, that's just, it's a bad investment. It's inflationary. It's going to generate about $200 billion in economic activity to the tune of $1.7 trillion. So that's pretty, that's, I mean, that, I mean, I, I use it as a, as a household. I mean, this is a big number and no house is this expensive, but who would buy a $200 billion house for $1.7 trillion? That's kind of what the government decided to do because, you know, there are defense hawks and there are entitlement hawks and there are education hawks and everybody wants what they want. And if a politician can't say no, you spend a trillion dollars a year that you don't have, you wake up one morning with the largest debt in the history of mankind. And we're leaving that to our young people. I mean, that's the discouraging part of this. And part of the young people of Generation Z, we have with us this morning, um, someone who Forbes is named as one of the top social media power influencers. She's one of the world's most retweeted people among digital marketers, social media expert, Kim Garst. Ms. Garst, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How about yourself? I am doing well. So why do we even care what Gen Zers think when they're so young and uninformed? Well, I would say for two core reasons. One, they've uh, surpassed the baby boomer uh, demographic as, as far as numbers are concerned. Um, and uh, they are not uninformed. They really are uh, probably the most informed because they hold that smartphone in their hands basically from the time they're, they're I use this um, term very loosely, but <laughs> basically from the time they are, are born meaning they are the youngest generation ever to have uh, be exposed uh, to um, information 
um, at a very young age. So they are very informed. Um, they're very, I would call them um, probably more activists, uh, you know, more than anything else. They have very strong um, feelings about what they care about, and they're using their dollars uh, to support those, um, those belief systems that they have. Kim, I'm a boomer. I mean, I can remember having to watch TV at a certain time, having to listen to my favorite song at a certain time. I mean, it was appointment television. It was appointment radio. It was appointment, you know, listening to cassettes or eight tracks. I'm really dating uh, myself here. But but the reality is these, um, these Gen Zers who have these strong opinions are formulating these opinions and taste not based on similar traits and characteristics to the way we how do we reach these people i mean if we are conservative radio i'm not asking what your political ideology is that's none of my business but but if we are trying to influence some of these young people into believing certain things about the world how do we reach them what are the do's and don'ts i guess is what i'm asking Absolutely. Well, one, I embrace social media and specifically social commerce because they're making most of their buying decisions um, on and through social media. So if you want to reach them, you absolutely need to be active and real on social media. Um, You need to keep it short. Their attention span is about eight seconds. So they are looking at short form content in record numbers, um, mostly um, on Instagram, uh, YouTube, and even Snapchat, um, arguably. Um, They are also very much in line and in tune with what I would call authentic people, influencers, not big name influencers. Like we, you know, going back, I'm, you're probably about your age. And to your point, you know, in the past, if, you know, um, somebody, uh, a big brand, a, a big name, you know, a tennis star or whatever would recommend a specific product, you know, whitey tidies or whatever they were, you know, we would go buy those things because we recognize that name. That is definitely not the case with Gen Zers. They actually have a distrust um, around government and um, big names because they know they're being paid or there's some other entity in the, in the mix. So they're very much in line and in tunement with regular people, uh, people who are just, you know, with smaller uh, connected communities, uh, but that have the same values, about the same, um, you know, things that they care about, um, and, and they're listening to those, those people. Um, and they're very much about um, transparency and social issues. So they they really care about engaging with brands that have values that assi- that align with their own, um, and you know they they want um, to do business with with uh, brands that align with their value system. But you're, to your point, you're very you're absolutely right. In the past, I think a lot of our value system have have come through. Um, traditional media and or through our parents. Today, Gen Zers are getting information in every direction, literally every direction. That is interesting and scary as a parent of three three kids, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's kind of an interesting, uh, I just saw when um, when Freehold gave me this um, list of people who are able, uh, I was thinking about debt. I mean, the reason when I thought about Ralph coming on and I knew Ralph would talk about debt, Ralph's always talking about debt, a little bit like Mark Sanford. Ralph's been somewhat of a debt hawk his entire political um, life. Ralph's a former member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, and, and Ralph and my relationship go back to, he was actually an announced candidate for lieutenant governor 
when I decided to run, and we were opponents of one another in the early days of the 2010 lieutenant governor race, and Ralph got out of my race, uh, my race. It ended up being a race I, I won, but he got out of our race and, uh, and ran for Congress over in um, that district. Once Mick Mulvaney, remember Mick Mulvaney beat John Spratt. There's a lot of history in that class. Mm. Trey Gowdy ran when I ran. Nikki Haley ran when I ran. Tim Scott ran when I ran. I'm talking about all his newbies. I mean, Nikki had never run statewide. Tim had never run statewide. Tim was actually running for Congress. Trey was running for Congress in the uh, in the upstate. Ralph, uh, excuse me, Mick Mulvaney was running. And I look at the Trump administration, and you've got Nick Mulv- uh, Mick Mulvaney, a part of that administration. Nikki Haley, a part of that administration. Tim Scott, highly regarded by the Trump administration. Just kind of a... Um, Kind of an interesting time, that class, so to speak, the class of 2010 left quite the uh, the impact on the national mm. scene. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Well, let me see if I can tie these two things together here uh, for you. I just listened to that lady's thoughtful insight, and what I walked away from was these people want soap that saves the planet, and if you can't reach them in eight seconds, they're on to the next thing. Um, we're doomed, fellas. We are doomed. Doomed, doomed, doomed. I'm like the guy. Remember old, old, old Robin Hood cartoon? We're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the other part of it is, and, and I've, I've been holding off to, to call and comment about the speakership and all that good stuff, but guys, two words. You ready? Kabuki Theater. That's all this is. I know that these 20 people think they're saving the world just like these Gen Zers do, uh, but they're not. What we really should be thinking about is the fact that they're out of 200 people or 220 people, 200 of them don't care if they have any rules on spending. 200 of them don't care if the speaker can just run the whole Congress by himself and, and not need input from the other 219 of them. Two of them just don't care about anything except their own career. It is we're we're done, guys, and and I know that we want to be optimistic and say, oh, but look, there was this little group of people that tried to change things. Okay, there's a little group of people at the Alamo that tried to change things too, but they didn't they didn't change anything. Every one of them was holed up in their thing, and they fought bravely and valiantly, and and we draw inspiration from them. But at the end of the day, they didn't win. Um, we're we're not going to win this. Because that guy is right. Nobody cares about the debt. You can you can send this country down the toilet as long as you'll give me a twelve hundred dollar stimulus check. And that is where we are. And nothing we're doing is changing it because you can't tell people in eight seconds why that's a problem. <laughs> and until you can, or until we figure out how to lengthen these people's gnat-like attention spans, you're just not gonna you're not gonna win anybody. We're, we're going to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle because this is a uh, 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 what's the word an intellectual pursuit, guys, and and they're over there just feeding them feelings, and you can't beat it. Thank you, Larry. Sorry, Appreciate but- that. Well, let me you know I touched on that last week. Um, the concerning part of this, I mean, the, the media was alarmed that twenty back row boys, you know, the the House Freedom Caucus would cause so much turmoil and confusion and um, and contest the Speaker's election for the first time in 100 years. Nobody talked about the 100 folks who probably ran on somewhat conservative agendas having no problem at all with business as usual. In other words, if Kevin McCarthy had become Speaker with a simple majority vote, no, no contest, the rules are as they were when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker. 
Nothing changes. I mean, you're right. You got more Republicans than Democrats, but nothing changes. It's a uniparty. I mean, I told Dave Baker 10 years ago, and I'll never forget the look on his face when I said, Rev, they don't care about you. It's about Washington. What does Washington want? I remember What the does day. Washington need? What, what is Washington most likely to get? French Hill is a Republican from Arkansas, uh, a Republican, once again, who probably ran on a limited government agenda. Send me to Washington and I'll show you, you know, how to fiscally restrain spending or, or be more conservative in, in uh, you know, education issues and infrastructure issues. I mean, he had the gall to stand up and he might have been the only honest broker in the, in the room when he stood up and said, you know, here's this sheet of paper and he held it up. And this is a Republican from Arkansas. And he said, you know how many names are on this sheet of paper? None. You know who these people are? You know who they represent? The number of people who voted for me that have asked me to cut spending. Zero. And then he shows a sheet of paper with multiple names, hundreds of names. These are the people who have called me and asked me for stuff or something or something to be doing in the name of government. I don't deny that. I mean, that's where we are as a people. But, but guys, sooner or later, the rooster comes home to roost, doesn't it? I mean, can we, that there's, I mean, it says modern monetary theory we, real? Because if that's the case, let's just go $100 trillion in debt and let's stimulate the economy to 6 or 8 or 10% GDP growth. I mean, if, we, we got to believe in one or the other. And I think Ralph Norman, I mean, Ralph's older than I am. I think Ralph's probably 70. And Ralph has probably insisted during his business life that we live within our means, that we operate our business within its means. And, and it seems to me that, you know, kind of, I think Larry's onto something here. You know, when, when 200 Republicans agree to go along with the rules of the new speaker being the rules of the old speaker, and the old speaker was Nancy Pelosi, what does that say about the Republican Party? There were only True. 20, and they were vilified. I mean, they were outcast. That they were disparaged as being rabble rousers and troublemakers and, and not understanding. Norman mentioned from establishment, respected Republicans, Newt Gingrich, Trey Gowdy, and yeah. more. I mean, they were yelling and screaming to the top of their lungs at how dastardly Sean this Hannity, deed was. Mark Levin. Yeah, Mark Hannity. I mean, uh, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin. Um, I think Beck and Bongino were with the holdouts. Um, but, but the point is, I think what Larry's saying is, look, I'm with them. I mean, I think these guys are, are honorable for what they've done, but they really didn't do much of anything. I mean, there's an optic here. There's an intent here. That, uh, it, it demonstrates some ability to, to be courageous and, and step out of bounds and, and say, no, I'm going against the machine. You know, I'm not agreeing to go along and get along. But at the end of the day, what changes? I mean, these 20 people will be revered in conservative circles, but what changes about government? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I mean, I know they got some fundamental things done in the House, but but I think the the bigger question is how much of us want more conservative government? We say we do, but how many of us would say that if you got a letter in the mail saying your Social Security is going to be delayed by five years, your Medicare benefits going to be cut by 20%, you know, the education budget at your local high school is going to be 10% less than it was previously. I mean, how many of us, I mean, be careful what you ask for. I mean, I don't think we have a choice. I think we'll either make the decision or they'll make it for us. I let a younger guy in a bar one night. We were in a bar, and I opened the back door. Shouldn't have done it, but I did. Let a younger guy, he was with us. He was 15 or 16. The age was 18. And I opened the back door, let him in. 
the bouncer found him and ran him out. I let him in again because I'm drinking. You know, I don't care about the rules and regulations. And the bouncer came up to me um, and he said, you know, we can do this your way or my way. You know, uh, I'll do it either way. You can walk out with me or I can throw you out of here. Doesn't matter to me. You're going, you're, you're leaving here because you broke the rules. Well, we're going to deal with our debt at some point in time. Are we going to deal with it by addressing the American public in a, in a grown-up sort of fashion? Or are we going to be made kicking and screaming? I would argue that we're probably going to be forced at some degree to 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 cut spending and make adjustments and 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 reformulate the way we fund government in some way, shape, or form. I don't know that. But I mean this isn't Buzz Lightyear. This isn't to infinity and beyond. <laughs> but there's a number out there somewhere that, that we can't pay back. I mean, the federal debt, I went back and read yesterday morning or yesterday afternoon at four percent. The debt service on 1.24, um, excuse me, um, on $31 trillion is $1.24 trillion a year. I mean, that's where we're headed. Remember when we were concerned it was $500 billion? Wow. I mean, we've got a debt payment interest only of $500 billion? Yeah, that was only two and a half years ago. Now it's $1.24 trillion. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Morning, Williams. Hey, you know I've been with this phone for 35 minutes, man. Well, we appreciate you hanging Thank in there, Williams. Going. I mean, that that's not right, man. But anyway, um, what you didn't ask Raph about the text he said, uh, Mark Mellis, would you explain to your um, listeners and audience what was the text about? You're talking about the text between Trump and Mark Meadows? No, the, the one that Raph Northern sent, um, sent, um, sent like uh, a text. See, I don't know about that, Williams. You explain it, and I'll try to find out more for you. Okay. Um, He's talking about military, you know. He t- talking about military um. A uh, Boston law. He told Mark Mellors to ask Trump to create Boston law about uh, the voting system by January 6th. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I mean, I, it seemed like I did hear a little bit about that, but I don't think that story ever ever came to fruition. I don't think it made a big deal. Williams, hey, what, 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 I, what I, thought, I thought you were calling about Biden having documents in his um, oh, yeah. at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm asking you, why didn't they ask him? I asked you um, um, last week, ask him, why did he send the text? I'll ask Ralph why he sent the text if you'll tell me what you think of Biden having classified documents in his possession <laughs> outside of the White House. Uh-huh. Let's make a hey, deal. I, How about I, that, I, Williams? Okay, the Republic, Republicans going to cut Social Security, right? That's the goal, right? Well, I, mean, I think somebody eventually will be made to cut Social Security I if we're going to balance our budget. They, are, they, they already uh, took the woman rights away. You're talking about you from killing babies? Yeah, yeah, they already took a woman right for her to make the decision. Is that a bad thing to take a woman's right from killing babies? I mean, but would the state help her with it? If she can't help her... But anyway, uh, have a good day, man. Williams. Okay, you held on a long time. I <laughs> yeah. want to make sure you get your piece said there. Thank you for um, I've heard there was a text between Ralph and Mark Meadows, but I would imagine members of Congress 
habitually text one another. I mean, I got to believe they're always probably texting one another about, um, you know, whatever issue is at hand or wherever they think the agenda needs to And whatever to go. it was, I would imagine. Or are we going to Pizza Hut or Pizza Inn? I mean, I would imagine they text about a lot of different But they did this whole, you know, this January 6th, quote, commission, right? They would have studied and seen all of that and didn't hear much about it. So don't know what. Um, my tweet yesterday, and um, it was about Elon Musk. And if Elon Musk bought CBS, NBC, ABC, Washington Post, New York Times, we'd find out they were just as corrupt and biased as Twitter is. The only reason we, we know about Twitter is Elon decided to buy it. And I wish Elon would buy them all. Sell all of your <laughs> Tesla and SpaceX stock and go do uh, the, the greatest service humanity has ever known by buying every legacy media outlet in America and revealing exactly how biased and unfair and liberal oriented um, they truly are. 843-661-0937. Dr. Bolt will be with us in the 8 o'clock hour. We talked last week about the um, the speaker election. Um, we had, I guess, the most contested election in 100 years. Uh, as Kevin McCarthy did win that election, made some pretty dramatic concessions. And I said this morning, I'll stand by this. It's probably the best couple of days the conservative movement has had in a long, long time. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. I was thinking about what could have been about college football. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair at Francis Marion University, is with us this morning. I was thinking about, we'll talk some politics sure. here in a second. Some of the most um, important speakers in American history is kind of our topic today, our subject today. Um, the General Assembly in South Carolina is going back into session, a lot of pre-filing of bills and, and work as they get ready. Um, Russell Fry is now an official member of Congress. We'll try to get Russell um, on the line with us one day um, this week. But um, but but I, I was thinking about what could have been and dr bolt walks in and he's got his buffalo bills jacket on <laughs> not his tennessee volunteers mm. jacket on but but how do you think your volunteers would have stacked up i mean i went back and looked this morning dr bolt uh i don't want to be an sec homer i guess i am but i don't you try to, to be. be but i mean since 2006 the sec has won 13 yeah. of 17 national championships 36 percent of its league has won a national championship. Five of the 14 teams, Florida, Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, and LSU, LSU have all won national championships. Doesn't include the Gamecocks and, and Volunteers, <laughs> but you guys do have a national championship in your right, – how many, how many national uh, – is it one or more than one? Well, there's a whole bunch that – I thought they were. Back like in the, yeah. the old days, like if a single – Back in early American game, history. You, there, you there you go. Back, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when Jefferson and Hamilton hey, were arguing about the role of government. We, we won the first BCS and ES going way, way back to you those, did. those days. And Peyton Manning was not the quarterback. T. That, Martin. That, yeah, right? T. Martin was the quarterback. Mm-hmm. That's when, it, when everybody thinks of that period of time in Tennessee, yeah. they think Peyton Manning, but T. Martin was the quarterback when they won uh, the, the national. Beat Spurrier. Right? And just, yeah. And um, I think when when Manning decided to come back for his senior year, I mean, imagine today yes. Peyton Manning decided to come back for his senior year. What would an NIL deal <laughs> look like for Peyton Manning to come back his senior year at Tennessee? I'll tell you what they do. They would go to the General Assembly. And seek an appropriation, <laughs> and the General Assembly would probably vote yeah. for it. They probably the would. Unanimous. Yeah. yeah. They, they, here's what they would do. Here's how it'd work out. You ready? They'd go to the Vanderbilt boys and say, "Hey, we'll we'll give your law school some money, <laughs> you know, but but we need this quarterback to come back." I mean, imagine him deciding to come back. I mean, he would have been the first pick in the NFL draft. And he decides to come back and play another year. And this Spurrier takes a jab and says, well, I guess he wants another Citrus Bowl MVP. <laughs> T. 
typical Steve Spurrier um, fashion. So I asked you a question a second ago. Sure. What would be um, the line of demarcation when it comes to um, modern era of American politics? I mean, that's ambiguous. There's no exact line in the sand. But what would you perceive the modern era of American politics to be? Again, you could ask 10 historians. You might get 10 10 different ones. But I think myself and and others are kind of say post-1960s. Once you get to Richard Nixon, that's when you start to see uh, the the main realignment uh, post Civil War, you had the idea of the the solid South, where the main election in Southern politics was the Democratic primary. I mean, if you just didn't run as Republican, if you did, you were a sacrificial lamb. You knew that come November you were going to lose, and so you had to be a Democrat if you wanted to be successful in politics. It's not until you get to the late 1960s with Richard Nixon, once you start to interject social cultural issues, uh, that suddenly it's okay for a Republican to start running. And then once you get to 1980, Reagan is sort of able to smash, uh, break up the solid South and flip it really just uh, very, very quickly in the span of less than a decade, where now it's uh, it's tough to run as a Democrat. What do, you ma- what do you make of what happened over the weekend? I mean, as a student of history, a, uh, uh, I mean, you get paid to recount history. What do you make of what you saw uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Well, much to my wife's chagrin, I had the television on. It was it was riveting it for a, a, a dorky historian. This was Christmas morning, and you kind of thought, all right, maybe it's going to be, we're going to get to a second ballot. And then it's like, hey, it's going on and on and on. C- C-SPAN didn't have the cameras. or we were, There was nobody in control, so they were zooming in. You could see these guys, the angst, the pain. I mean, and by the end, we were back to the old days of Andrew Jackson. You had to have an Alabama representative trying to punch uh, a Florida representative and as a Tennessee alum, I mean, by all means, <laughs> go for it. And so, I mean, we were just, if McCarthy maybe didn't close the duel, we'd have had duels or the deal, we'd have had duels <laughs> on the floor of Congress. So you hadn't seen anything like this since 1860, uh, where William Pennington became speaker. And maybe this is just bad news for, for poor McCarthy, who my, my hat's off to him. I thought he played a pretty good, a pretty good hand and was very persistent. Uh, but Pennington, after he won that speakership on the 44th ballot was so bad that even his own constituents uh, voted him out of office next time didn't even have a chance to run for speakership again but i think it sets up it's going to be a a very fun intriguing congress i think unfortunately what mccarthy and the freedom caucus if they're able to bring the moderates along and they probably will just because they know that a lot of this is just going to be dead on arrival in the senate if even schumer lets it get to a vote and it passes biden's going to be there with the veto so we're probably two years of gridlock i'd imagine but but i argued earlier that is probably one of the um one of the bright moments of the modern conservative movement the post-trump yes. modern conservative movement i mean when you talk about reagan i mean obviously yeah. there was a philosophical revolution I mean, it's about conservative government limited government lower tax and power in the private sector we're still trying to figure out exactly what the trump revolution is kind of sort of about but um but it was a perfect storm dr bolt you and i were talking during the break it was a speaker who had a burning desire to be speaker or an yes. ambitious member with a burning desire to be speaker had a small margin, um, 20 House Freedom Caucus members who just weren't going to play ball under those yeah. terms and conditions. He had to make the concessions. There was not a a dependable backup plan, so to speak. And out of that comes yes. out of that comes what I would argue was a um, a good day for conservatives. What say you? No, I th- it sets things up because if everybody talks about kind of, oh, we're going to cut, we're going to do this, we're going to make these cuts, we're going to get the, the deficit under control. And then once you're in the majority, once you, you've you got the gavel, heck, let's let's spend like drunken serious. 
there is a small influential portion of Congress right now which claims they're going to hold the speaker's feet to the fire. And so maybe we can start to finally get our, our fiscal house in order. Now, again, it's, it, it takes two to tango. Schumer, the Democrats are going to have to go along with some of this as well. But there are pressure points. There's some leverage uh, that they do have. And so you've got a, a, the budget, the debt ceiling coming up. So perhaps some serious concessions can be extracted. Uh, or who knows, we're going to be dealing with it on the fiscal cliff uh, come fall. Let's go back to former speakers. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, I'm the modern, enlightened, woke media says she's the greatest speaker <laughs> in the history of mankind. We don't know what kind of speaker McCarthy will be. But who in history were some of the more influential speakers? Well, you, you, you got a lot. You got maybe the first one you go back to a uh, Henry Clay from Kentucky, who comes in right before the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, I mean, Clay sort of made his mark early on. There was a, a, a sort of an eccentric politician named John Randolph, who brought his dogs onto the floor of Congress and then trained them to bark uh, when somebody was speaking that he didn't like. <laughs> so you know, you can't make this stuff up. And Clay says, I'm not going to be intimidated. And Randolph was like, I had a high-pitched squeaking. So one of the days Clay was speaking, the dog barks. And so the speaker comes down and he kicks the dog. He boots the dog across the house chamber. And everyone, oh, my God. Nobody else had the guts to. So a lot of guys who didn't like Clay now say, yeah, I'm going to support you. And so Clay assumed a lot of powers, uh, tried to use the speakership as a a springboard. Uh, Clay wasn't above using uh, dirty political tricks. There was an important bill that passed in 1820, the Missouri Compromise, passed by a vote of 90 to 87. And a lot of guys sort of sat out the vote or conveniently abstained. So some guy says, I make a motion to reconsider. And Clay says, all right, you can make the motion first thing tomorrow. All right, as soon as we come back, we'll, uh, you can make the motion. And Clay realizes if he gives the guy a night, he's going to find he's going to get some guys to switch. So they come back the next morning. He stands up. Speaker, I'd like to make a motion to reconsider the vote. And Clay says, oh, my bad. I already signed it and sent it over to the Senate for concurrence. And so as protesters just howled in anger. But, I mean, hey, sometimes you got to do a little, uh, something a little dirty, if you will. But you sort of have some, the next major speaker is a guy by the name of Thomas Reed. He was a Republican uh, from Maine. And so what happens is by the, he's in 1890, uh, reading the Republicans had just gotten so tired and upset of the Democrats uh, making all of these garbage, mundane motions. Uh, they would refuse to have a quorum. Uh, so one day what Reed does is he tells the sergeant arms, lock the doors, uh, and he traps the Democrats in there. And when he calls their name, they don't respond. And then Reed as speaker marks them as present. And so when he starts doing this, the Democrats run forward and say, no, you can't do this. I'm not present. And Reed looks at him and says, you're here in the chamber, so obviously you're present. And so that sort of, that's how he's sort of able to break. He's able to get things done. Uh, he was so powerful, he was called Tsar Reed. Uh, but maybe the most powerful guy uh, is a guy who comes shortly after Reed. His name was Joe Cannon, uh, who one of the, the main house office building is named after. Uh, he was the most powerful, and he has changed the rules which allowed him to appoint all the committee chairmen, all of the members on the committees, and Cannon had him appointed not just as speaker, but he was chairman of the rules committee. So anything that moved in Congress. He was king. Right, exactly. It's a good way to put it. And what happened was he was so powerful, it led to a major revolt, uh, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, uh, 1910. Uh, This is when they make their move because they figured it's St. Patrick's Day. Uh, A lot of guys are going to be out uh, 
having a couple, then they're going to be having a couple of more. So there was a bunch of disgruntled Republicans, his own party. They meet up with the Democrats and say, hey, man, we've got to we've got to make our move. And so when a lot of the Republicans were out getting drunk, you had these sort of progressive Republicans and the Democrats uh, were able to seize the floor and they stripped the speaker of most of his powers. And so this would now allow the majority party uh, to have a say on who was going to serve on the committees. And then the next major one you have, you have Sam Rayburn. Uh, he, he was speaker forever, for, wasn't he? 17 years, right? Wow. The longest uh, serving speaker through most of World War II, uh, then most of the nineteen, the mid-1950s and the late and the early 1960s when he finally dies. Uh, in 16, but 17 years broken up uh, over a time. Uh, but when Rayburn was speaker in one of his stents in 1955, uh, the Democrats controlled the House until the Republican revolt of Gingrich in 1994. And then sort of before Gingrich, remember Chip Foley, Tom Foley, or excuse me, um, Tip O'Neill was one of the most powerful speakers. And what O'Neill did was, of course, uh, very, very effective at gerrymandering districts, uh, but also didn't give the Republicans very many much staff. So the Democrats loved him. So it was very difficult for the Republicans to get anything, anything done. And, of course, Gingrich was sort of leading the revolt. It took him close to, uh, to 10 years uh, but he finally was able to make his move. And Gingrich, a controversial figure, we all remember him uh, from our lives, uh, got a lot done in the 1990s, you know, divided government, worked with Clinton, opposed Clinton in some instances, eventually was was forced from power. Uh, one of the guys who tried to lead a coup against Newt Gingrich was a guy named Bill Paxton, uh, not the actor, game over man. Uh, but he was represented from right outside of Buffalo, New York, uh, and tried to stage a midnight coup uh, and Dick Army, if you remember him, the majority leader, ratted him out, went to Gingrich and said, uh, uh, they're coming for you. And so that's why you've never heard of Bill Pax, and he was all set to become speaker. Uh, but Bain, Gingrich stripped him of his power. And then when Gingrich finally stepped down, he had Denny Hastert, and Hastert is best remembered for the Hastert rule. And ha- the Hastert rule said, we're not going to bring anything to the floor unless a majority of the Republican Party supports it. We're not going to let just a small faction then go across the aisle for Democrats, and that's sort of been an informal rule that most have used. And a lot of liberal scholars would say, well, Pelosi has to be up there as well. Uh, she's certainly the first female to be elected speaker, but maybe too soon. But she was, again, effective in at least holding her caucus together. Let me ask you this. Were there any presidents, uh, the, the speaker-president, we talk a lot about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, Newt yeah, Gingrich and Bill Clinton. In early American history, do, do any of those relationships stand out? I mean, did any speaker have... Uh, a working relationship with the president worthy of, of mentioning? Again, for most of the time, aside from Henry Clay, the speaker wasn't too, too much of a powerful institution. When did that happen? I mean, when did the speakership become such a yeah. powerful and influential political position? Probably the late 19th century is when it finally right just becomes a position that lots of guys began aspiring to. And so, again, Clay, of course, you used, but he was really using it as a springboard uh, for other offices, and he realized if I want to make a name for myself, I've got to take on uh, more powers as possible. But again, a lot of guys would just, you know, if you were maybe late to the caucus meeting, say, hey, guess what? You're speaker now. Uh, so again, it wasn't something that nowadays, like, I mean, Kevin McCarthy, his whole life has been building to this moment. I mean, you can, I mean, who knows what type of deals he was willing to make uh, to get this. He almost became speaker in 2015, uh, came up a little bit short. And if he didn't make it this time, his whole career probably would have been considered a failure. Was there any reluctant speakers throughout American history, any speakers that really and truly didn't go <laughs> looking for the job and it kind of found them? 
I remember recently poor Paul Ryan mm-hmm. in the in the Boehner revolt. He was the one guy who just was it was kind of forced upon him. He's maybe the most the uh, the most obvious example. We got a lot of these like backbench obscure guys. I mean William Pennington, the guy we talked about earlier, was a freshman congressman, and sort of the big wigs in the Republican Party said, "Well, nobody knows anything about you," and they thought they could control him, and that's exactly what they did. And the spear, his constituents knew it, and that's why he lost lost his seat. Was it intentional that the speaker not have a lot of influence and power? In other words, the president was the president, was the president. He didn't want to share that power. If you are a if you're a dominant figure in the Congress, I mean you could rival the power yeah. of the speaker. I mean, excuse me, the presidency. You don't get to point executive chair. I mean, excuse me, um the administrative heads and whatnot. I mean, Department of EPA is going to be led by who? The president's appointee. Mm-hmm. You know, the Department of Transportation, the the Attorney General. But but a speaker in the legislative body who has a clarity of vision about where he wants to carry the country. I'm not saying they That's can right. rival the power right, of the president, yeah. but they can contrast the power. Oh, absolutely. Right. And if, uh, speak with a loyal majority, a large majority. If you're a speaker and you've got two thirds of the Congress behind you, you've, you've nullified the president. You've got the power to override vetoes and no, no speaker has ever had that power. But again, you could almost set yourself up as, as a rival. If the numbers lined up, uh, correct. the constitution is very, very vague on the speakership. And so that's why these rules are always, always in flux. And you, you got to tip your cap. I thought last night we were going to be in for another protracted battle uh, over the rules. But again, to tip the cap to McCarthy, they got it through uh, right away, much to my disappointment. And so that left me with the only alternative to watch the football game, which turned out to not be yeah. so interesting. So when did they pass a rule that disallowed dogs from being on the floor? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if they uh, were when the, when the Congress is in session. Specifically had to put it in there. Maybe that's a, one of those gentlemen's agreements. I don't know if somebody wants to, to try yeah, that you, out. You, in modern America, it would be, it would go like this. This this damn fool's bringing his dogs in here, man. He's trained his dogs to bark when we're trying to make remarks or, or comments. That is total dedication but you know what to your craft. Say? Well, this is my support dog. Yeah. You've got to look. Oh, there, there you go. Uh, I, I'm insecure. I, I have anxiety issues, and I need this dog to be near and dear. Let's take our first sure break. We'll be back. Dr. Will Bolt, um, history chair, French Marion University, as he is on Tuesday mornings. Back in a minute. You know, there are a few things we do on Wake Up Carolina off the beaten path. Well, let me say this. There, there are a few things we do on the beaten path. Right. The majority of things we do are off the beaten or off the beaten path. Uh, the zebra story, the otter story, have become staples mm-hmm. of our of our arsenal here uh, at Wake Up Carolina. Another that we have uh, grown fond of, and hope we've um, provided some entertainment value to our listeners, is the whiskey speech. And we're talking about you know going back into session. Congress has a new speaker. Uh, they were hard at work yesterday, uh, basically trying to defund some of the things they did with IRS agents. You know, the 87,000 IRS agents, the houses after that, they want to defund that, take it out of the budget. There'll be a bit of a squabble. There'll probably be some rulings in both chambers as it relates to um, to, to whether they can do that or not. But but every time politicians go in back in session, I think they go back next week in Columbia, this weekend in Washington, Russell Fry is a newly sworn in member of Congress. Um, I think of what a General Assembly does. And one of the great stories, and Dr. Bolt and I were talking during the break about, you know, the characters. We're talking about, you know, a man bringing a dog in and training the dog to bark when certain people <laughs> um, said certain things. I'm telling you, we don't need that, but we don't need what we have today. That there's got to be, when, when we take characters completely out of politics, 
we're not going to get as good a politics. We just aren't. I mean, there, there's Rev. I know some things about your marriage. You know some things about mine. But you don't know it all, and I don't know it all. You don't need to know it all, and I don't need to know it all. Everything needs some degree of secrecy. So when it comes to making sausage, some of the <laughs> characters are most effective if we don't know exactly what they're doing because sometimes it just takes – it's not real pretty to get to the finish line. One of the great characters of American politics was a, a member of the Mississippi General Assembly back in the 50s. Um, he was a judge. He became a law professor. Um, John Grisham. Great um, author was a student and an assistant to um, Soggy Sweat. And, you know, you're talking about are you for or against this? You know, Ralph Norman, Ralph joked around when he said, Ralph didn't really answer the question because I asked Ralph about Social Security and Medicare. And he said, here's what we got to do. And he <laughs> said everything exactly. but Social Security and, and Medicare. Right. And, uh, you know, and, very skillful. And, well, and, you got to be careful going down that road. But I just think we appreciate. The characters, the flavor of the character in in American politics, and I'm afraid that government has become so organized and sterile, and you know, really doesn't. I mean, if you do things like Soggy Sweat did today, you'd be ridiculed, you'd be chastised, probably ostracized to some degree, not allowed to be in the club. But I've asked Reb, out of respect to the General Assembly, going back into session next week in Columbia. They're doing some work now, getting ready to go back into session, and um, and Congress reconvening yesterday for their new session with a new speaker. Um, this is one of the great, great, great orators in the history of American politics, um, taking both sides to an issue. Imagine that, but unapologetically and, and highly effectively and rhetorically taking both sides of an issue. You probably, some of you have heard this before. Some of you have probably have not. But here is Representative Soggy Sweat in the Mississippi General Assembly having a, a hotly contested debate on prohibition, drinking. At this particular time, however, I want you to know that I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take a stand on any issue at any time, regardless of how fraught with controversy it might be. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey. All right, this is how I feel about whiskey. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples a Christian man and woman from the pinnacles of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips and a warm glow of contentment in their eyes. If you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts a skip into the old gentleman's step on a frosty Christmas morning, if you mean the drink when it enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget if only for a little while life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows, 
if you mean to drink the sale of which pours into our treasury, untold millions of dollars which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children. I'm blind, I'm deaf, I'm pitifully aged and infirm to build highways, hospitals, and schools, then certainly I'm for it. This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. To, to, to me, if we had more of that, we'd have a better government. We'd have a better America. I mean, there, we lack color, guys. We lack flavor. We lack flair. We lack personality. We've driven Americans into being robots. I mean, we, we truly have. And, and the, you know, the, the punitive nature of government, the systematic way we conduct our business. Dr. Bolt, you're a history professor. <laughs> I mean, I'm still trying to recover. That's the first time you've ever heard <laughs> yeah. that. Okay, your take on that. Well, I know what know what I'm going to play for my students next time. I got to talk about prohibition. I mean, that's, that's, that's some great stuff. I mean, it, it, right it's, it's, the, it's the best rhetorical yes. um, speech I've ever heard. Of I want it both ways. I mean, I uh-huh. want to be I want to be for and uh, and that's against good. it. What a politician! You know, the devil's brew, the <laughs> yes. poison scourge, could also be the oil of conversation, <laughs> the philosophic wine um, that puts a little pep in an old gentleman's step on a cold, frosty morning. Um, I don't know what there is there, but, but you know, I, I just think politics needs that is the art of, you know, uh, compromise and personalities. And you saw Kevin McCarthy work through, you know, a long, long weekend of voting and or the end of the week of voting and led to the week of voting. I just wonder how those circumstances would have been handled in the Mississippi General <laughs> Assembly with someone like, someone like Soggy Sweat. A character out there. But, well, there was the, speeches don't really move people anymore. The, the great orders, it's just, you know, it's it's for a, a soundbite, a, a political ad come the next election cycle. You know, in the early republic, there were guys when, when Henry Clay was going to speak, Daniel Webster, John C. Calhoun, all of Washington would shut down. Uh, the, the galleries would be full. Uh, you know, if people who had good seats would sell them. Uh, they'd give them to a fine-looking lady because uh, everybody wanted to hear these guys. And maybe the first time in a while, a lot of people were kind of tuning in to kind of watching a congressional procedure. You know, maybe you get more people interested in the process, how we do things. They'll probably just go back to their their usual typical days. But it made for some great television, a, a great week. Who were week. some of the great orators in early American history? I mean, talking about Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster was uh, he was probably regarded as one of just the the best the best guys. He was a lawyer by trade, so naturally uh, he could hold the floor. And just people were just spellbound. Poor New England children had to memorize, commit to memory many of Webster's uh, great speeches. Most famously, his second reply to Robert Hayne of South Carolina in 1830. Uh, Clay was another good speaker, but Clay was usually, he was like the soggy sweat. He was very, very funny, uh, invective. Uh, if you had a, sort of like a dirty secret, a skeleton in your closet, Clay wasn't shy about exposing it uh, on the floor of the Senate or the House. And so he would use that invective. And so the people, would, the galleries would just was howl in laughter because a lot of them were inside jokes and the people would get them and he could just uh, humiliate you and embarrass you. And Calhoun, of course, was a good speaker, but he was just very, very bland, was just, uh, he would try and get you with facts, and that's how he'd try and win you over to his side. And probably the greatest thinker in American political history was not a great speaker. Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, right. What was not, I mean, he, he would always say, I don't have the ability for orator. As President Jefferson gave two speeches, his inaugural addresses. And when, when he gave his first inaugural, nobody could hear him. 
He kind of mumbled it, whispered it. Everybody had to wait the next day to read it in the newspapers to figure out what the new president was saying. Jefferson started the trend. He didn't give a State of the Union. He wrote it down, sent it to Congress, a clerk read it, and everybody up until the pompous Woodrow Wilson followed his example. And so no president uh, in the 1800s gave a State of the Union message. And now, of course, it's a big, huge event for the president where they can set the agenda uh, and set the table. That is very interesting. Jefferson gave two speeches hmm. uh, in two terms as an American and most president. Presidents right give two speeches on the day they're elected. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and, and looking the first for, hour. Yeah, I mean, they, they want to be in every major news publication you could you could ever imagine. So, um, yeah, when you're teaching your students about prohibition, oh, you've got new arsenal. Uh, absolutely, in the, man, uh, yeah, I'm looking in, forward now. Yeah, good deal. Thank you, guys. <laughs> good to see you. Have a great week. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, there, there's not an exact equation here, but to me, there's a little bit of similarities in NASCAR and politics. NASCAR has been, uh, I don't want to say overtaken. The majority of superstars in NASCAR today are, are cookie cutters. I mean, they, they have a marketing company. They, they have an image. Uh, they have a brand. They, they have a, a certain persona. Uh, it's squeaky clean. It's, um, it, it just, I'm not interested in it. I mean, I'm really and truly not. I mean, the days of the Petties and the Yarboroughs and the Allisons and, uh, you know, there, there were personalities there, the Earnhardts, the Elliots. I mean, even up to Rusty Wallace and Mark. I mean, there, there were personality there. And society is, I just almost insisted, we get so damn guarded about everything we say and do and how we behave. And if you make one mistake, that could be a career ender. Right. I mean, I, I just think that soggy sweat kind of just took it as it came. You know what I mean? If people didn't like what he said, then you dealt with it under your terms and he dealt with it under his. And I really believe that a lot of this goes back to government. I mean, the government influence of being so punitive. I mean, it is government's job to organize society in some way, shape, or form. I mean, do you accept that, Rev? I accept I don't like it. I mean, you know, I, I don't like it. I got to be on this side of the road and you do. Uh, you know, got to be on the other. But I, but I understand that. I mean, we're living a civil society. I mean, you've got a responsibility to your fellow man. I've got a response, and the government does have some oversight over that process. But but when did we believe it's tolerable to allow government to be so punitive, and and to really not not just execute their privileges, but demand certain things of certain of certain people? And I look at NASCAR, and I look at the Petties and Yarbers and Allisons, and and you know, man, you don't tell those guys where to stand and how long to stand there. And I think over a generation, we've, we've um, and I've said this a hundred times over the air, um, if you want to be crazy, excuse me, if you want to be stupid, you better be tough. I mean, that's what my grandfather said. But I don't think he was talking about the government. I mean, I think he was talking about the real world we live in. You know what I mean? If you want to borrow too much money or not go to work or, or, or go to a bar and get into a fight, I mean, if you're going to be stupid, you better be, you better be tough. But, but I think we've always, I think the American experience requires a certain degree of civil disobedience and, and individualism, however rugged you may choose that to be. And I think the government has attacked individualism. I think the government has attacked, you know, rugged individualism in particular. I think it's rewarded political correctness and wokeness. Um, I mean, if you stand here for longer than anybody else, you'll end up being the, um, the, the chairman of the board, so to speak. You know, if you agree with government more than you disagree with government, we're talking about special interest a second ago. I mean, how many people are extracting sums of money from the government and not contributing a commiserate amount back to the economy? Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars are being reallocated via government 
Um, and, you know, we're talking about $1.7 trillion in stimulus money that's going to generate about $200 billion in economic activity. That's a bad investment, but somebody ends up with the money. I mean, it ends up, somebody ends up with the loot, so to speak. And it's normally those who are what? Obliging the government. They're, they're, they do what government says do. You better stay in here. And if you stand here long enough, you know, we'll, it's just it's so disgusting to me. And I'm not angry with Chase Elliott, and I'm not angry with some of these other young drivers. I, the first one that comes to mind to me is is Jimmy Johnson and Jeff Gordon. You know what I mean? Uh, you never saw them that their shirts weren't tucked in, unless they're wearing designer shirts that aren't intended to be intended to be tucked in. I mean, when you saw Richard Petty or Kale Yarborough, they may have a Marlboro behind their ear. You know what I mean? And grease on their knuckles and yeah, right. driving a car with no power steering and air conditioner. And I think there was something about that rugged individualism that was so prevalent and pertinent in American society. And I said yesterday, um, I believe that, and this is where I get real Wyoming-ish when I go down this rabbit hole, I believe that government intentionally attacked masculinity because at the core of masculinity is courage. I'm not afraid. Not afraid of what? Not afraid of much. What do you mean you're not afraid of much? Well, if the government tells me to do this, I may or may not. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, then I'm not going to do it. But the next thing you know, you know, everybody lives in a homeowners association. Everybody's answering to some subcommittee or committee, and um, somebody's riding around on a golf cart with a tape measure, making sure your shrubs aren't six inches higher than they should be. Can you imagine somebody in a golf cart pulling up to Soggy Sweat's house and saying, Mr. Soggy, your um, shrubs are six inches higher than homeowner association rules allow? I mean, he may shoot the person, um, but nobody else does that ever again. And it, and it really, I mean, it, you know, we talk about mission creep and, and policy creep and the government saying, you know, we're not going to do all this. We'll do all these things, but certainly you don't expect us to do all these other, all these other things. But, but yeah, I mean, I think we, I think the country has really gotten itself in a very complicated place of looking around for government to come save the day. You know, when is government going to do what I hope government I mean, it, it should be your responsibility. I go back to the story about um, about Katrina. Um, I lived during Hugo. I mean, I lived through Hugo. I watched devastation, and I watched you know nervousness and anxiety and heartache and and hardship. But I didn't I didn't see a lot of people waiting around for government to come to the rescue. I mean, there was a conditioning that had happened in most of South Carolina. We felt it was our job to rebuild our lives and help our fellow man rebuild theirs. When Katrina hits New Orleans. What's the first thing you heard? The constituency of New Orleans were saying, where's the government? I mean, I don't know how to fix this. I don't have any money. I mean, my house is torn up. My yard is ravaged. I mean, I don't have any place to live. Sure, the government's here, not to help me for a week or two or three, but to put me back on my feet and make my way of life the way it was. And I just remember, I've never forgotten how I felt and the people that, that I was, you know, I, I lived, uh, inter, intermixed with, intertwined with, living amongst, you know, and, and nobody waited on government to come rebuild their lives for them. Everybody said, look, we got a bad hand, man. I mean, that was a bad storm, tore everything to hell and back. But we've got to figure out a way to kind of pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and do the best and the best we can. The FEMA and government agencies obviously helped. I mean, they, no question about it. But I don't, I don't remember people saying, hey, because my way of life, got significantly disrupted it's your responsibility to help me put the puzzle back together again i mean we're here for a brief period of time we're going we're going you know help clean up and help people get 
you know, borrowing, borrowing money to pay. This is where I'm headed. I mean, it's my job to have insurance, your job to have insurance. The insurance company pays the bill. You put your life back together the best way you know how. But when Katrina hit, I just remember everybody. I mean, everybody that the media spoke to said, what am I going to do now? Nothing. What is the government going to do for me now? Everything, I hope. I didn't ask for this. I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything to put myself in this position. So it's not my job to get myself out of this position, but rather the government's. And I, I just think we've got a, a psychological dilemma on our hands that I'm not sure we have the gumption, guts, or fortitude to get out of. Take a break. Back in a few. I think of two things, marijuana and Hannah Pampley go high school. I don't know why. I just think of <laughs> marijuana and Hannah Pampley go high school back in the late, late seventies, maybe into the early, early eighties. Um, it's good to be King. <laughs> That's a great line. isn't it is <laughs> just to, 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 it's good to be King. If only for a while to stand there in velvet and give them a smile. That's a, that's a great, great, um, great line. Last hour of the morning, we talked about a lot of different things. Um, a lot of other things I guess we could eventually um, talk about, but I want to go back to the previous subject because I don't know I don't know that I have the ability to articulate exactly what it is I feel in my soul. I mean there's there's a burning something or other in my soul about the way I feel about the world and the way I wish the world were. And does that tie into characters and politics? I mean, we played the soggy sweat last hour. And obviously, he was a real character, and that type of thing really doesn't fly in today's society. And it's my infatuation, I guess, with Everest and and Wyoming and some of these some of these other places to the I mean, republic they, for which Wyoming stands. To the republic for which Wyoming stands. You know, in in that article of the American Conservative, I mean, it says in Wyoming, it's not unusual for contractor to write his invoices in Sharpie on leftover scrap wood from his current project and leave on your doorstep. The, the reason we played that song is going to be king. If I were king, 
Wyoming would be the model state to build a nation. I don't want the wind blowing 50 miles an hour and 20 <laughs> below zero uh, and sick cattle and all these other sorts of things. But, um, but, but the article basically says or implies, you know, to which to the republic for which Wyoming stands. And the guy begins the article by, or the lady, it's actually a lady. Um, after living in Wyoming for a year and a half, I've realized the state is more like a separate nation than a full-fledged member of the United States. Take the issue of safety for an example. In other states, safety means that no one should be allowed to say something that could upset you. Here it means carrying bear spray and a gun <laughs> when you go hiking or filling up your car when you have fewer than 100 miles left of gas because you won't see civilization for that long. I wish I didn't feel that way. I mean, I, I wish I were encouraged by, by the way young people think and some of the um, some of the academic training they're getting and some of the real-life experiences that, that I think we're prioritizing. But, but I, I look at the media. I look at academia. I don't know anybody on my team, Rev. I don't know anybody of influence on my team. I mean, I think about talk radio. What are our obligations? What are our responsibilities? Maybe ultimately our obligation is to push back against or resist so, some of this nonsense. It's, it's not to try and educate or inform or enlighten to some degree listeners about what's happening in the house. You know, what's happening with the debt, what's happening with energy policy. I mean, we have a lot of discussions here, and I'm proud of what we've done in regards to having um, productive conversations about what people believe. But at my core, I am disgruntled, frustrated, bothered, angry about the way the country is leaning, the way the country is veering. And, uh, and when I say, you know, you and I talk about winning the lottery, um, I mean, you win a $300 million lottery, you end up with $100 million. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, what does your life look like? You play it today, you might well, I mean, win $1.1 billion. Yeah, I mean, $1.1 billion. So out of that, you get, I mean, after taxes and, you you know, you take the one-time payment to get three or $400 million, I mean, money doesn't matter anymore, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, money, whatever you want, you can have. What do I want? I mean, what do I want if I have $300 or $400 million? I want the damn world to, to function as the world should. I want people to understand that, that abortion is not a choice. It's the taking of human life. I want people to understand that you can't sit on your duff and make as much as people who get up and go to work every day. I, I want people to understand that, that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. And I'm tired of discussing that. I'm not having that, that conversation anymore. So, so as I tell my wife, instead of me being forced into those conversations, why not move to Wyoming and buy a ranch and raise cattle and live in peace, removed from all of that? Is that a cop-out? Is that running or avoiding or, or you know, trying to, you know, get, a, get away? Yeah, of course it is. Absolutely it is. I can't do that because my wife doesn't, I mean, it requires me to be, be transactional. I got to come to work. I got to make a living. You know, what most of us do, 99.9% of us, us do. But, but when, I, when, I, when I play this hypothetical out in my head about what I would do if I were to win that $300 million lottery, I mean, I, I'm not going off the grid and putting bombs in the mail and writing a manifesto. I'm not talking about going off the deep end and like the Unabomber. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But, but, but I'm in the world, and I guess to some degree I'm of the world. What are you going to do about this world? And I do believe Soggy Sweat. I mean, imagine what Soggy Sweat's life would be like today if he tried to give that speech in any General Assembly in America. He'd be ridiculed. I stand corrected. The House General Assembly is going back in session today. Philip and Jay just texted me and said, it's not next week, doofus. It's today <laughs> when we go back into into session. And um, those guys are doing good work on behalf of this area. Now, you know, 
we should encourage them and, and support them in their um in their conservative endeavors. But but once again, I know the fire burning in my belly. I just don't know that I can articulate the point I'm trying to make as as it needs to be. I don't like the way the world is headed, and I don't know that I can do anything about it. Larry said it pretty eloquently earlier. You know, you got twenty who kind of believe in these conservative principles. You got two hundred that don't. I mean, the 200 said, uh, you know, I'd probably like to see some things change, but I, I'm not sticking my neck out. And I do believe there's something to the um, the comparison between Jeff, George, Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson and Chase Elliott. I mean, they're good people, man, very good people and great race car drivers. But but the Petties and Yarburs, I mean, they, they got a, a Winston cigarette behind their ear, you know, and a bag of Red Man in their pocket. They got boots that they've had eight or 10 or 12 years. I just, those are the people that I respect and admire. And I believe the more sorts of those people that we have when we make these decisions on behalf of where America goes. And, and I do believe the government has instilled a certain fear. I mean, you say it well off the air, you know, the, the characters you've known. I mean, what would happen to these people today? You asked me two people in particular. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're characters? Absolutely they are. They're absolutely characters. And they don't like the world any more than I do but they're having to exist in it. And it's not that I don't like the people, and it's not that I don't think I've been blessed. I've been unbelievably blessed to enjoy the kind of life I've been in. I mean, I could have been born in a cave in Afghanistan. For whatever reason, you know, I was born in the most prosperous country on the planet. I don't have any idea. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett says that you, you win in the ovarian lottery the day, the day you were born in America. I accept that as a privilege. But, but damn it, we've got to, we, 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 nothing's guaranteed to us. I mean, there, there are certain trides and truisms that have served the American people well. And, and all of a sudden, we start debating what is a boy, what is a girl, you know, should you be made to go to work? I mean, not the nonsensical things. Once again, I think there are very legitimate debates to have in America. And I'm more than willing to participate in some of those. I love it when Jeff calls. And, and we have these disagreements. I think Jeff respects me. I respect Jeff. I think Jeff makes good arguments. I, I hope Jeff thinks I make good arguments. But, but I mean, are we really going to debate what a boy is and what a girl is and whether or not someone should make as much money not working as someone does? Really? I mean, are we going to allow the media to be 95% you know, liberal? Academia, 95% liberal? I mean, we've got 140 diversocrats at the University of Michigan. It requires 1,074 in-state students' tuition to pay for these people to make sure, you know, that we're diverse enough and inclusive enough. And when they're talking about inclusion, they're not talking about black and white anymore. They're talking about transgenders and, and you know, and, and eight or nine-year-olds. I mean, are we really going to have that debate? So as I get older, instead of me wanting to have that debate, some of me says, I love to win that lottery and go to Wyoming, man. So I don't have to argue with people about whether a boy's a boy, a girl's a girl, and an eight-year-old should be allowed to have a medical contract or sign a medical contract to have their sex changed. I just it's nonsense to me. But it's been normalized in America, and they expect you and I to engage in that conversation in a very serious fashion. I'm ready to have a serious debate about energy. I'm ready to have a serious debate about taxes and and debt. Ralph Norman. I mean, called in this morning. I thought Ralph was very articulate in explaining his position. I'm more than willing to have that debate. But I'll just be damned if I'm going to have a debate about a boy being a boy, a girl being a girl, someone not working, making more than someone who does work, 
Uh, it's just absurd. Can we can we discuss whether or not natural immunity is more effective than the vaccine? No, we can't. Why can't we? Because they said we can't. Who are they? I mean, why, why are they entitled to decide what we get to discuss or not? Why do they get the label me, you know, misogynist or racist or bigoted? And by the way, we've, we're finding out, thanks to Elon Musk, who they really are. Sure. They ain't the characters. I'll assure you of that. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. John in Ellery listening to WTQS in Orangeburg. Morning, John. Good morning, gentlemen. I had another subject going on my mind when you started talking about that darn lottery and my wife said, what would you do if I, you won the lottery? I said, I don't have a clue what you do with all that money. She said, I'll bet you could spend it, though, damn it. <laughs> uh, I spend a lot of it. If you, <laughs> if you want um, want to have some peace and tranquility, just move on down to Stumphole. I don't know much about Wyoming. It don't get... You know, you don't have no blizzards and stuff on. You don't have no cows down there, but it's it's peaceful. And I ain't heard nobody say anything about a transgender in that little spot. <laughs> I was uh, I wanted to let you know that, that the conversation you had about the holdouts in the Republican Party enlightened me because when this thing started, you just didn't find out anything about why this was going on and, and and to me it made the republicans look pretty bad but after you explained what was going on to me hell i'm in 100 percent agreement i think they needed to hold out and get, and get some changes up there we need a lot of change in washington and and it ain't just about transgender it's about taxes and whose money they spend and they spend it they don't care whose money it is and I'm not a friend of uh, Lindsey Graham anymore because I burned his daggum email up in the last couple of weeks about this daggum omnibus bill he voted for. Of course, he responded and I responded back. But, uh, I, you know, we've gone crazy, absolutely crazy. I, I, you know, I, I can think back. I'm an older guy, so I can think back into the 50s and 60s. If somebody talked about transgender, they'd take them out behind the barn and whoop their butt. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. We we off center so bad. Of course, one other thing about Wyoming, the Cheneys have got a lot of power out there. They don't have any of them. You gentlemen have a good day. <laughs> Thank oh, you, John. One thing more. Yes, sir. One more thing. Georgia won the national title last night, and, and I went to sleep before it was over with. It got boring. But um, I was a little bit upset about them running the score up like they did and uh and then i thought about it and i said you know i think the reason they did that is because of that close call they had with ohio state and they wanted to make it clear that they were the best team in the country but if you go back to that ohio state they were the luckiest team in the country that night because that boy missed the field goal he don't miss gentlemen have a good day thank Thank you for what you do thank you john appreciate that yeah i mean i tried to explain why i think the republicans the 18 deserve far more credit than they were getting in the mainstream media but the mainstream media is never going to celebrate conservatism i mean anybody that stands in the name of conservative policies conservative principles the mainstream media is liberal academia is liberal so, so when they were the holdouts, they were the, uh, you know, they, they had no plan. Uh, they were out of control. My, my disappointment is Trey Gowdy and Newt Gingrich and Lindsey Graham and some of these others. And, and look, I, I told you over the air several years back, a couple of years back, when Tom Rice voted to impeach Donald Trump, I, I was nervous when I said it because Tom's a friend of mine. And I still consider Tom a friend. And I think somebody called in and kind of caught me off guard and said, is that a bridge too far for you? And I said, yes. 
I mean, that's a bridge too far for me. And it was. Um, Lindsay supported the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill as we stand today as a bridge too far from me. Now, now once again, I've defended Lindsay at times when very few did because I thought I understand the political situation he found himself in as a member of the minority and even in the majority having to deal with Trump, who's an interesting and complicated political animal. So I gave Lindsay a lot of deference when most of you decided not to. But but the $1.7 trillion omnibus that that funds the government through September, when we knew there was going to be new energy in the House and we could potentially force the hand of some of the liberal Democrats, uh, that was a bridge. Now, Lindsey could sit down in here, and I wish he would, and explain to me why he felt that was the the right thing to do. And maybe I changed my mind, but I've not had him explain it to me in a way that it makes sense to me. I just think it was a bad, bad, bad decision. It was not representing the interest of South Carolina. Um, I want to go to Georgia real quick because I think there were a couple of things happening last night. I think Kirby Smart was very interested in making it clear that this is not Alabama sport anymore. There's a new sheriff in town, and his name is the Georgia Bulldogs, and I think he dropped the hammer on SMU or TCU because of that. Didn't want to leave anything left to debate. I mean, there, there's a new sheriff in town, and it ain't Nick Saban, and it ain't the Alabama Crimson Tide. College football's best program today is clearly the Georgia Bulldogs. I went back and recounted some of the numbers. 13 of the last 17 national champions have come from the SEC. And I've heard this argument all last week. The SEC went 5-4 and four in bowl games. Excuse my French, but who gives a rat's ass about the, the AutoZone Poulan Weed Eater Bowl? None of those bowls matter. It's really and truly what team has the fewest opt-outs. You know, what team kept their roster most intact when they go play in this postseason exhibition game, which is what they become. I mean, the bowl games mean absolutely nothing now. And a team who's a, I mean, use South Carolina as an example. I won't make an excuse for the Gamecocks. They lost the game, but, but they had a third of their roster not in place. Had a lot of offensive players that didn't make the trip. Um, would they have beaten Notre Dame with a full? I don't know. I don't have any idea. It's a good football game. But, but I think, you know, when you look at the league, it's a dominant league. I mean, it's top-heavy, but every league is top-heavy. I mean, the ACC's top-heavy. The Big Ten's top-heavy. The Pac-12's top-heavy. Every league is top-heavy, but there ain't no league top-heavy like Georgia and Alabama. I mean, they are the two premier programs in college football today, and the only team that could have put player for player on the field last night with Georgia would have probably been Alabama. I mean, if you wanted a close football game, you probably wanted Georgia playing Alabama in a neutral site, who knows who the odds makers would have made the favor. Probably Georgia by touch, but but it would have been much closer. But I think last night Kirby saw a chance, not to stick it to Saban, because I don't think Kirby's interested in that, but Alabama's been the cat's, you know, they, they've been the he's, cat's meow. He's making a statement, sure. especially after as close as the Ohio State playoff game Yeah, and, and Sonny Dyke said during, you know, the, um, the period of time leading up to the championship game, he said something a little bit derogatory about the SEC and some of their out-of-conference scheduling. And I think Kirby probably put that on the bulletin board and said, hey, man, this guy thinks this league is overrated. Let's go show him. Yeah, let's go show him whether or not it's overrated. And it's not the SEC winning 13 of 17. 36% of teams in the SEC have won the national championship in that 13 of 17 run. I mean, that's staggering to me. I mean, that's nearly 40% of your league 
has won a national championship in a single sport. Now, now I said earlier, and I'll say it again, as a proud Gamecock, there ain't a bigger Gamecock in this world than yours truly. Clemson is the only team that I can remember during that run that could stand toe-to-toe and play Alabama or Georgia, and they did. I mean, they had elite generational talent at quarterback. They had great players at a lot of different positions. But when I look at back at the 17-year run that included Florida winning, LSU winning, Auburn winning, Alabama winning, Georgia, five of the 14 teams have won a national championship, the only team that I'd consider a peer to those teams is not the year Florida State won. That would have been Jameis Winston's year. Clemson was damn good. I mean, they're still good. They're just not elite. And I was texting with a good Clemson friend of mine last night. He kind of admitted that, um, no, we don't have anything for them. Not right now. I mean, Georgia looks like they're on a um, kind of another level. And I think Alabama is going to be that sort of team. Alabama stubbed their toe, and, and they didn't deserve to be there. I mean, they did not deserve to be in the national championship game because they didn't take care of business twice. Well, they had an injured player. Huh? Injuries happen. Um, every college football team in America could recount what could have, should have, would have have been, but but I do believe that a lot of the 65-7 last night was Kirby saying, I love Nick. Alabama's had an incredible run. He's probably the greatest college coach ever, but there's a new sheriff in town, and it's the Georgia Bulldogs. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Our number, a couple of callers are there. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Neil. Hey, guys. Um, as a as a Big 12 guy, uh, in fact, I even went to the Sugar Bowl this year, um, I think what you saw last night was a Georgia team that had underperformed all year and kept teams like Missouri close and a TCU team that had overperformed. Uh, TCU probably won at least three, four games that they really shouldn't have because they just had so much heart and they overperformed. And, and that, that collision of those two those two diametrically opposed forces after after rest and practice uh, led to led to the you know biggest blowout we've had um, you know in in a college football playoff. Neil, who's uh, the best so. team in the Big Twelve? Well, according to uh, the way that it ended, uh, K State was this okay. Year. Okay, uh, but, you know we lost two of the games, and you know we we I don't know if you watched that Sugar Bowl. Uh, we K Staters were pretty excited uh, until the last minute of the first half because we had a very good chance to go into halftime up 17-14 over Bama. And we led them at 10 at ten nothing at one point. But then uh, I'll tell you what, Bryce Young is special. I mean, seeing, watching in person, watching him drop deep passes right into the basket at a uh, – a wide receiver on a full sprint. That that was just that was impressive. But but I watched that game and it looked to me K State was able to withstand the physicality of Alabama. I mean they, they didn't oh, get yeah. intimidated. I mean Alabama had better players, but Alabama's got better players than everybody but Georgia. But but it looked to me yeah. that K State kind of held their own. In other words, they hit them in the mouth and, and TCU got yeah. hit in the mouth last night and they were like they didn't have an answer for that. I mean they just simply did yeah. not yeah. know how to respond. K State when they got hit in the mouth by Alabama, it looked to me like they had somewhat of an answer. Yeah, I, I think, um, and, and, you know, obviously I'm watching it real close. I think what we're seeing come back next year, even though we're going to lose Deuce Vaughn, that 5'6 that uh, beast of a running back, um, a couple other key players, I think what we're, com- we're bringing back is going to be very, very good. I think we've got a good shot. And basically, you know, kicking uh, Oklahoma and Texas out the door with the tail between their legs, and you all can deal with them. <laughs> good <laughs> deal. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. Appreciate that, my man. Neil's always a good caller. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable observation. You get the best of Georgia and um, and probably the second or third best team 
in the uh, in the Big 12, and it leads to kind of the recipe for disaster. Georgia's just that kind of team. Now, now one thing that I think is worth mentioning, and excuse me, Georgia fans don't want to hear this, your quarterback's older than seven quarterbacks in the NFL. There's a lot of difference in an 18, 19-year-old kid and a 25-year-old man. I mean, there just is. And, um, and I mean, the, the kid has won multiple national championships. He deserves all the accolades. But he's 25 years old. And a 25-year-old quarterback, I mean, the, the body development, the maturity, the, the, the intellectual abilities, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of difference in an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid and, and, and what Spencer did at, um, at 25 years old. I think I read yesterday he's older than seven NFL, NFL quarterbacks. But, um, but, I mean, Kirby's recruited at an elite level. Um, Saban has recruited at an elite level. Um, I said earlier this morning, I'll say it again, I think South Carolina, uh, the year, no, I would say next year, but it's actually this year now, I think the news of Spencer Rattler coming back is a big deal. I mean, it's a, you know, someone said, uh, you know, there's a difference at a quarterback and everybody else. I mean, there's a reason quarterbacks sign contracts for $100 million and nobody else does. I mean, the most, I guess the most valued commodity in football today, and Neil may disagree, but it's the big, physical, fast, wide receiver. I mean, the NFL in particular. I mean, the best athletes in football today, to me, are these big, you know, strong, physical receivers that can run. Um, I mean, that's a, <laughs> there's a lot of um, there's a lot of characteristics about that that create mi- uh, mismatches in the NFL. But but I think when you look at a 25 year old quarterback leading a uberly talented or a, a, just an exceptionally talented football team. You're gonna win a lot of games. I mean, you just simply are. And I think, as a Gamecock fan, getting Juice Wells to commit to come back is a big deal. But if Spencer Rattler agrees to come back, now once again, I said this morning, Rev, and you may disagree with me. Rattler is not a first-round draft choice. He's simply not. I mean, his body of work is not good enough. He's Bitcoin. I mean, he's high risk, high reward. He makes three throws a game that that you go, wow. We hadn't had many quarterbacks that could do that. And then he makes two a game that you go, every quarterback we've ever had could do that. And, and you kind of scratch your head and say, is he those three or those two? Yeah, I mean, he's both. He's those two and he's <laughs> and he's those three. But he brings a certain swagger about him, a certain aura about him, a certain, I don't want to say a sense of invincibility because he's not Georgia nor Alabama. But I think if the Gamecock fans find out. You can see what he can do. Well, I mean, he's, he has exceptional talent. I mean, his arm talent is elite. No question about it. I read a, a, a draft review, you know, one of these analysis on Spencer Rattler, elite arm talent. Um, the, the body may not be durable enough to play a long time in the NFL. I mean, you get beat up a lot, not as much as you did because they protect the quarterback at so, at so much, but he's kind of a, um, I don't say he's a small guy, but he, but he's a little bit, he's not a, he's not a big kid. He's not a big guy. And you do wonder about the um, the durability factor in the NFL. But if he comes back to South Carolina, I mean that 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 kind of validates not just a five star player coming, but a five star player coming and then figuring out a way to hold on to him. I mean that that that's a big deal when you're trying to build a program. It wouldn't be that big a deal at Alabama or Georgia or even Kansas State for that matter. But but kind of a fledgling middle of the pack program trying to get better, trying to figure out a way to compete with the um with those in the tall weeds, having a proven and talented guy come back at quarterback is is a big step in the in the right direction. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Hello, Anthony. Yeah, morning, fellas. 
Dave and Ray uh, Ken, I want you to look in your crystal ball. You were speaking earlier about affirmative action and something else. I'm a truck driver, so I kind of forgot earlier. It was about 6.30 whenever you were talking about it. But um, prime time, he was in the in the media as far as leaving Jackson State and everything. Uh, there's a movement to get uh, NFL players back to HBCUs and coach to sports. Because as you probably know, back in the 50s and 60s, um, the best talent was at HBCUs. Now, do me a favor and look at your crystal ball and tell me what effect would happen if the all the top recruits of black players in high school were to start going back to the HBCUs. Because don't forget that a lot of these schools didn't let black players come there until they realized the profit margin, margin for sports and TV. So if all the – most of the top, like last year, the, the Hunter boy went to Jackson State, number one recruit, and, and, and he played good. What would happen if that trend keep on and the major, major players was going to the HBCU? Um, what effect would that have on the rest of the school? Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. Interesting. I think primetime was the – I mean, he was the um, – I mean, he was the perfect coach at the perfect time and the perfect system. The historically black colleges and universities had been a bit forgotten. I mean, they really had. The um, the great African-American players wanted to go play where? In the big conferences, in the big games, in the big stadiums, in front of the big crowds, and now get the big paydays. And I think Coach Prime was the perfect coach at the perfect time to basically shine a bright light on some of the inequities of that, you know, historically black colleges and universities. What what I don't understand, and here's where I don't know where you go from here. How does the historically black colleges and universities match the the television money that the SEC and Big Ten are going to have? I mean, if if you're a kid, let's say you're an African-American kid, you're a five-star wide receiver, you're being recruited by Michigan, Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, and what are the uh, Jackson State historical college black uh, historical black college? Well, I mean, what leads you to go down that road? Are you loyal to you know, kind of the ability to be uh, one of the pioneers of of re-energizing. See, see, when when people got mad with Dion for leaving, and some in his, you know, in that world, the historically black colleges and universities got frustrated and said, "And he's a sellout. He bailed on us." No, I mean Dion. Dion's a guy that can coach. I mean Dion can speak the lingo. He can recruit these young kids, and, and I think Dion had. I mean Dion saw that there's no way I can compete with the the, the Power Five conferences with, with the resources. And, and Dion did a phenomenal job. I mean, he convinced Walmart to build a practice facility and make investments in some of these in some of these universities. I don't know what lies ahead for historical black colleges and universities. I don't have any idea. But but I know that 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 African American players are probably going to continue to want to play on the best teams in the biggest bowls or playoffs coming in two years when the 12-team playoff expands. And um, is that good for historical historical black colleges and universities? I don't know. But I, I just don't know. But but if I were the parent of an African-American kid who was really, really good in football, um, what would motivate me to send my kid? I mean, I understand the loyalty. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a young black male who happens to be really good in football. Am I beholden to the historical black colleges and universities, or am I beholden to my best interest? And it's hard to argue, Rev, that your best interest is going to the one of the historical black colleges and universities. You'd be seen as a crusader, and you'd be seen as somebody who really puts their money where their mouth is. 
here I am, an African-American kid, and I want to make a reinvestment in these African-American universities, but, but that's going to be hard to do. I mean, it's just really going to be hard to convince kids. Um, when, when Nick Saban sits down with a five-star and the, and the five-star kid says, Coach Saban, I've narrowed it down to your university and, and Jackson State. Why should I come to Alabama? Saban's got a list from here to the highway of why that kid. I mean, how many pros has Saban coached at Alabama? I mean, how many kids are making millions of dollars playing the game of football? Because once again, they were on television every Saturday. Recruits saw them, excuse me, scouts saw them play every single Saturday. And then you're, you're visited by the historical, you know, the, the HBCU. I just don't know what they sell him. I mean, they, obviously they sell him an experience and they sell him, you know, something unique. Ah, we, we live in a world where, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Got a buddy of mine who has always said, money's the answer, what's the question? I, it's just hard to argue in college athletics today that it's not about um, the money. It's always about the money. Guys, I wish it weren't. I mean, I honestly and truly wish it were not. George's Collective is being run by a former chairman of Augusta National. Let me say that again. I mean, how good do you think that cat is at fundraising? I mean, the guy running the Georgia Collective, and the collectives are the NIL. I mean, they're, they're the group outside of the university that basically makes the deals with the players that convinces them to come or stay. I mean, Georgia has a collective run by a former chairman <laughs> of Augusta National. What is more exclusive than that? Wonder what sort of list he has of wealthy people able and willing to contribute uh, to college football programs. It's just, I mean, it's, you know, the rich get richer. I mean, that's just, I think that's where we are in college athletics. And as a Gamecock fan, I think we're incredibly fortunate to at least, I mean, it's on the, I mean, it's on the periphery. You know, you got Kirby and, and Saban sitting here on each end of the table, kind of dominating the discourse, but at least Beamer's in the room. You know, I mean, you're in, you're, you're in one of the, um, I mean, one of the two elite conferences in America. And, and that doesn't mean Clemson's not an elite program. When I say things like that, People think I'm criticizing Clemson. I've been unbelievably supportive of what Clemson has done or, or believing that they are to be commended for what they've done. Um, but, but Clemson has an issue. I mean, in this, in this college football realignment where it looks like the SEC and Big Ten are really beginning to separate. Uh, the, Neil said once Texas and Oklahoma come in, well, Southern Cal and UCLA are coming in to the, um, to the Big Ten Name a brand outside of the Big Ten and SEC that have national intrigue. Clemson? Okay. Fair enough. They do. Name another one. Florida State? Okay. That's about it. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Ken. You remind me of something I heard Ellis Johnson say to recruits. He said, he said if you want to be one of the best you need to play in one of the three best conferences in, out there. Do you know what the three conferences are he cited? The SEC, Big Ten, and NFL? The AFC, the NFC, and the SEC. <laughs> well said. One? Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate Yeah, the AFC, <laughs> the NFC. And the, uh, and the SEC. And I'm not trying to be an SEC homer here. I mean, it is what it is. 13 of 17 national championships have come from 
uh, the SEC. It's top-heavy, no doubt about it. Name a league that is not top-heavy. The NFC's top-heavy. The AFC's top-heavy. Now, they're more parity because they let the bad teams draft first. The NFL, excuse me, the college football formula kind of allows the wealthy to get wealthier and you talked about a little bit a little while ago about the comparison you know clemson has become an elite program uh they were they were they were i mean they're still good they're just not elite right now but but in the world of the conferences sec acc or whatever um why is it clemson was able to rise to that level in south carolina for example has not i just don't think the gamecocks have ever made that commitment and i'm talking about commitment organization alignment the word i use a lot is alignment i'll give you an example I believe that everybody that works at Clemson understands that a lot of their fate and future and prosperity are tied to success or failure of that football program. They, they, they guard that tiger pole with every fiber of their body. They understand that it is the cash cow. It is what allows them to be Clemson. And, and I think the Gamecocks have tried to be a little more cosmopolitan. I get it. It's a flagship university. It's got a law school, a med school. It's got campuses scattered around. I mean, it's a harder university to get your arms around. But, but once again, I don't believe people in the, in the Gamecock athletics department stay up at night worrying about whether they're going to beat Alabama tomorrow or not. I think Clemson has created a culture. The person that sweeps the floor on the basketball court with that big paw He's intimately concerned about what that football team is going to do next year because they put so much eggs in that basket and they need to be really good. I mean, the existence of the university is not predicated upon whether the football team wins or not, but it's their brand. And they protect that brand with every fiber of their being. Having been in Columbia and watched the USC board and the Clemson board, I don't know that the Clemson board ever did anything without considering what the consequences were to that football program. I think Gamecock Nation, once again, a little more cosmic. It's a big school. I mean, it's a lot bigger university, and it's a complicated. I mean, I, you know, I've said it before, and I'll say again, that being a board member at Clemson's easier than being a board member at South Carolina. It's just, you know, you, you got a smaller university. It's, it's not sprawling all over a city that includes the, the state capital. But, but culturally, I think Clemson has done what Alabama and Georgia have done. They've committed to that football program in the most intense way imaginable. And I think South Carolina has to make that commitment if they're ever going to rival, you know, the, the elites of college football. That they're a good program. When they had a legendary coach, they were a really good program. But I think consistency, being a, being a team that could play in a 12-team playoff with a chance to upset somebody, it takes that commitment. And they've not made that yet. We'll talk tomorrow.